Let's see if this works. Alright, so this is the episode of the Growing with Fishes podcast. Shoot, there we go. Now we got everyone's things going. Um, I think that we're live. I think that we're streaming. YouTube totally jacked everything up. Uh, so let's go. Here we go. Trying to double check the stream. Think we're live. Yay, we got to work. Cool. So we are good now, I think. Possibly, maybe. Um, Anyone? So I'm check, checking chat. Let me know if anything sounds weird. Do you want to verify us? Anything? Uh, yeah, I think everything's going good based on chat. So I think we're good. You're live. Everything sounds good, guys. Good. I apologize. They YouTube decided this morning to change everything, and I didn't realize it till about an hour and a half before the show. So it took a while to um, work out all the kinks and get everyone into a chat room that was functional with everyone's microphones again. So I think we managed to do it, um, and I appreciate everyone's patience. Uh, I know we started 15 minutes late, so let's introduce everyone. Uh, first, uh, let, thank you so much, uh, uh, Dale, for your patience <laughs> with us all. Uh, on that, um, uh, why don't you uh, introduce yourself and tell everybody where you're from. Hey, I'm Dale Hunt. I'm a lawyer from San Diego. Um, just started a law firm called Planted Planet. Um, I'm a botanist, a plant geneticist, and I protect plant variety. Um, I work in the canvas. Welcome to the show. Awesome. Very cool. Do you even do tissue culture? I'm muted. I'm sorry, I'm muted. Yeah, I've, uh, I work with all kinds of uh, plant varieties all over the world, and some of my clients do a lot with tissue culture. Awesome. Uh, and then, uh, uh, Beth, yeah, uh, Beth is also with us from the Open Cannabis Project. You're the, uh, I'll let you introduce yourself. I don't want to miss, say the wrong thing. Oh, that's cool. Um, uh, I'm sure that you would say things that were at least mostly right. So, um, uh, so my name is Beth Schechter. I'm the executive director of the Open Cannabis Project. Um, I'm uh, based in Portland, Oregon, and I'm streaming live from my partner's, uh, office slash electronic experimental den. So that's what we're up to today. Um, but the OB Cannabis Project is a nonprofit who, um, our mission has really been about um, creating documentation about cannabis plants and um, primarily through genetic uh, records and chemical records of cannabis plants. Um, the idea being that the more information that we can um, document about these plants, the harder it is for people to do things like patent a plant that might be in the public domain or something similar. Um, through this work and through a lot of um, discussions with the community and things, uh, we are really shifting right now into focusing on really creating um, better data sharing and legal frameworks for breeders and growers. And so that is really the focus of 2019. We're still going to be collecting and sharing data, um, but the idea is that there are a lot of nuances with regard to how we how we share this data, with who we share this data, um, you know, what kind of licensing and contracts that we use, 
Um, also, open source, just as a concept, is something that has um, a lot of different variations. And so, like when one person says open source, they might mean one thing, um, and then somebody else might say open source and mean another. So, um, part of what we're doing is really aiming to bring people together this year to uh, to talk about these issues and then to figure out some um, legal and data sharing frameworks that are really suited to the needs and interests of the cannabis breeder and grower communities. That's awesome, and I look forward to hearing all about that from you here in a couple of minutes. Um, we yeah. also have uh, Josh from Dutch Blooms. Hey, how's it going, guys? How you doing, Josh? We got a uh, fish ganja guy. Hey, everybody. Hope uh, everybody's doing well. We got yeah, welcome a, back, brother. We got a uh, hog I master. Love your <laughs> we got hog master. How's everybody doing? It's good. It's nice yeah, to man. see you again. We got Malik Spider. I think it's been. Almost 100 episodes since you were on last, so it's been pretty cool to have you back on. Oh, man. I, I heard Beth and Dave were going to be on, and then I seen Fish 2 as a double bonus. You know, <laughs> I, how can I not join? This is just amazing. Plus, Paul and Phonics, Steve, what you do for the community and everywhere you're going, and just your, just your, your follow-through. You know, your follow-through is amazing, and mad props. To you. Thanks, Aww. man. Appreciate it. What <laughs> um, about <laughs> um, uh, Mr. Green Jeans? Oh, yeah. Thanks. Uh, it's great to be here. Yeah, man. I want to double down on that, Steve. What you do for the community. Man, you are the man. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for having me. <laughs> uh, and we got Roger from uh, I Love Growing Marijuana. I love marijuana. Hey, so. how y'all doing? And yeah, we all we we give Steve, we always give Steve kudos, and he deserves it. That's right. And and to have the uh, and, and I got to give kudos to y'all, you guests that that are starting to come on that are so important to uh, helping Steve spread this education, you know, and and allowing us to you know, coming on here and bearing it, bearing your soul, and let us question you about things, you know, and put you on the spot. And it's a lot of fun, you know, and uh, that's why we're all here. To, to spread it and to share it and make sure everybody gets it in the end. Awesome. So, um, so why don't you tell us um, uh, a little bit about the Open Cannabis Project and um, and you know all the awesome work that you guys do? Sure. So um, we so the Open Cannabis Project um, we started. Uh, the project itself started in 2015. It's just like a little project at Phylos Bioscience. Um, and in 2017, um, I took it on and made it into its own separate organization. And um, really, 2018 has been our first year as a nonprofit. And um, that year, we really focused on what we really wanted to focus on was building a database and a data sharing platform that would more easily let people share data with us. Um, as a way, again, to let people sort of like document their document their, their cannabis and share their information publicly. So um, in that, one of the things that we learned and realized was that, you know, while documenting genetic information is really important, um, and Dale will probably have some things to say about this as well, um, when you actually, you know, when you're looking at a, it, what we're, so what we're really, so what, what Open Cannabis Project is really trying to do is to create documentation of prior art. 
And what that means is documentation that um, an invention, in this case a plant, which uh, according to the patent office and others is its own type of invention if it's um, cultivated by the hand of man um, or by the hand of a human, but by the hand of, of, of man is the, the, the legal phrase that's used. Um, I wonder if, if that will one day include robot hands, but that's a whole different tangent. Um, but the idea being that the more that we can document about these existing plants, the harder it will be for them to get patents on them. So, um, but, you know, part of the way that when, when, so basically there's a path that a patent takes when it comes to the patent office. Um, it starts with an application. The application goes to a patent examiner who is then sort of like looking at all the claims and um, figuring out whether or not there is or is not uh, something that matches in the public domain or in another patent application. Um, and then it goes through a series of revisions and uh, rejections and revisions so that it gets to be approved. And so if through, you know, robust prior art documentation, you can basically insert like a little wedge into the patenting process that says, nope, oh, hey, you wanted to patent that thing, you can't do it because there's something similar not allowed. Um, and for cannabis, because everything's been underground for so long, we haven't had a lot of that documentation. So that's really the hard bit what we're doing. So we started, you know, the project really started with genetic data. Um, and when I came on board, uh, one of the things that we talked about and recognized was that, you know, well, a lot of the patents that seem to be coming through the patent office about plants really are focusing more on chemical information. Um, so like, you know, the terpene profiles or the cannabinoid profiles of the given plant um, and really looking for things that seem to be extreme. Um, and Dale, I'm definitely gonna let you follow up on this because I'm sure you have some nuanced things to say, uh, which is why you're here, hooray. Um, so last year we really focused on building, you know, the chemical part of the database. Uh, we worked with Confident Cannabis to come up with a, a protocol that lets any chemical lab to share their data with us. Uh, customers, of course, have to opt in. Like we operate under the assumption that all of your data belongs to you, and so we're not interested in taking data from anybody, right? Yeah, we're not interested in taking anybody any data from anybody without your permission. Um, so yeah, so we focus on chemical data. We got some uh, protocols for sharing data with us, and then you know, through um, I'm really grateful to just really Steve and to Joshua, both of you, um, for really engaging me on this discussion because I think that one of the questions, you know, through doing this work and through building this database, some of the things that we come to are questions around like, well, wait a second, is um, is fully open source data always really what's best for the cannabis breeders and growers? Like it's really great for scientists, it's great for research, it's great for public health, but what's really in it for growers to share their data and share their information publicly and freely? Um, is that necessarily the best way to do stuff? Um, and then number two, you know, again, there's all of these different ideas about what open source is. Um, there's lots of different types of open source. There's also major philosophical questions at the heart of like, is open source really what cannabis breeders and growers always want? Like, it's like that seems to fit really well with the culture, but if the idea is that like, well, I wanna share with my friends, but I don't necessarily wanna share my data or my genetics with everybody, then well, we need to think about this in a more nuanced kind of community-driven terms. So really what we're focusing on this year um, is we're calling 2019 our year of big questions because we're asking a bunch of really big questions. Number one is around data and IP, like what, what really is the best data sharing and intellectual property slash licensing framework that works well for independent breeders and growers. Um, question number two is about overbroad patents, which has been a big part of our a part of our mission. Like which patents, which cannabis related patents are truly overbroad, AKA take something out of the public domain 
um, that should be in it or are just so broad that it like stops innovation um, for anybody except for um, people within that company or within the organization that holds the patent. Um, and then based on that, what data can we collect and share to help sort of like support, you know, support or not support the overbroadness of that patent. And then question number three is really about genetic preservation and what are the best, um, you know, what are the best methods that we can use to preserve genetics because, you know, documenting cannabis, providing some kind of like digital record of genetic and chemical information is one thing, but that's not like that's not actually preserving genetics. Like it might encourage people to preserve the genetics, but it's not really preserving genetics. And so that's something that's really important to everybody on our board. And so our aim for 2019 is to ask these questions, have open dialogues just like this one, um, and really invite the community to participate in helping to figure out what these systems look like and ultimately like leading this process, which really is about protecting your work first and foremost. So, um, Dale, do you have, go ahead, sorry, ask a question, but then I want to let Dale jump in too. No, go ahead, Dale. I think what I would add to that is that um, for everyday people in the cannabis community, you might think of patents as uh, one thing, and, and I would think of them as really two very different things. There are patents that plant breeders get, and they protect a new strain for what people might call a new cultivar. If you, um, you do some plant breeding and you make something special and you just want to protect that special strain, that is a plant patent and that will make it so that no one can run off with that and make copies of it, make clones and rip you off. And a plant patent is it's impossible for a plant patent to be overbroad because that just protects people that that protects you against having people make unauthorized copies of that one thing um and i don't think anybody uh has a problem with that kind of patent if they do um i don't want to be insulting or condescending but i would want to sit down with them and explain um, what a plant patent really is, because I think there's some misconceptions around that. Um, but there's a totally different kind of patent, which is called a utility patent. A utility patent can be super broad, and those are very, very much subject to abuse. Not all utility patents are bad. Some of them are, are perfectly good, and some of them are used appropriately. But if there's a bad patent out there, I guarantee you it's a utility patent. Um, the utility patents that are, are the, the patents that are abused in the cannabis industry or the pharmaceutical industry or the, the biotech industry or the space industry or any industry are 100% utility patents. It's not possible to abuse a plant patent because it's narrow and it's specific to a new cultivar that somebody made by breeding or by selection or by finding a sport growing or a mutant growing in a cultivated state. And it's, like I said, it's narrow. It's like a copyright on a new uh, on a new cultivar. And all it does is, is protect against someone making unauthorized copies. Um, so one of the first things I would wanna do if someone felt like they were just anti-patents, completely against all patents in the cannabis industry, is I'd wanna sit down with them and help them understand that distinction. Um, and then, once we got to that point, um, if they're anti-patents and, and they're, they're focused on being anti 
utility patents, we might not have a quarrel. Um, although there's still room. I mean, I, I have some clients that I think are completely ethical and doing good things uh, that are out inventing completely new technologies in the cannabis space that are getting utility patents. And I only represent, I'd like to think, I fully intend to only represent ethical parties. And what they patent, what they, what they get protection on when they are patenting um, things that, as utility patents is exactly and only what they actually invented, what they contributed to um, the way the Constitution refers to it as, um, what is it, science and the useful arts or something like that. Um, and it's, so in other words, they're not taking anything out of the public domain that's already there. They, they invented something, they, they got a new idea, it's useful, and they want to protect the fruits of their labors for a limited time, and um, they do that with, by means of a, of a utility patent. And, um, and the, the protection they get is a reasonable scope that protects what they did, um, and it doesn't overreach into other people's territory or in, in some unreasonable way that, that is abusive. Now, there are people and there are companies that reach so far with their utility patents that it either reaches into the public domain or reaches way into um, areas that go way beyond what they invented. And that is very abusable. And there's plenty of room for people to be opposed to utility patents and opposed to patent abuse. And I'll tell you, even the courts are opposed to patent abuse. And when they find it, they come down on it. Um, and so when someone sues you for patent infringement, one of your defenses is that the patent is invalid because it, it covers the public domain. And another one of your defenses is that the patent is being abused for one reason or another. And so um, I don't want to sit, sit here and say that all patents are good because they're not. Um, but the patent system does have some safeguards against patent abuse. And I, I'd love to help people understand what those safeguards are. It's perfect perfect. There is no perfect system, whether it's, you know, whatever the system is, the perfect system. But um, uh, that's, uh, maybe this is a good time for questions or, or discussion. Yeah, so I was just going to open with, so I, even myself have been pretty, uh, um, uh, anti, uh, can you guys hear me? Okay. Yes. Whatever reason yeah, the mic, whatever reason the camera's not switching over. There we go. So, um, even myself have been anti-cannabis or anti-patents in the past, but until I got a better understanding of, of how it actually would, would work and protect, you know, even smaller producers. Um, so, so, you know, for some, a lot of people out there are anti, anti-patents in general for, for cultivars. Um, would you like to explain to someone like that why it would actually help them, especially if they're a small producer, maybe in Humboldt or some of these other places? Um, and explain to them actually how that could help them and help protect their hard work uh, that they've been developing for 20, 30, 40 Great years work. without necessarily being a, a greedy, trying to, you know, take over everything. Um, uh, can you explain to them how that would help them? Because that was something that, you know, until I heard it from you and, and your seminar, I really, I, I, I totally 
to be honest with you, kind of the wrong idea of, of how that worked. But once it was explained to me, it went, oh yeah, no, that, that totally makes sense. And, and yeah, that it, it does actually help the little guys and keep their, their hard work away from some of the, you know, what we would call consider corporate cannabis. Um, you guys want to talk about that, either one of you? Yeah, I'll just tell you, um, I'll, I'll give you an example of, of a, a really cool plant, plant breeder I met last year in Oakland. Um, he's a good guy. He kind of didn't want to spend the money on patents, and he um, he, he had some, some strings that he thought, well, you know, these are pretty good, but they're not all that. I don't really want to spend a ton of money on a patent attorney, and he thought it would, it would cost a lot of money to get pat, plant patents on the strains. He had some handshake agreements with some people. So he made, he had some strains, he made some clones, he put them out there. These guys said, okay, yeah, we'll sell you clones. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they said, we'll pay you X number of uh, dollars or whatever per clone. And, uh, and then pretty soon the money stopped coming in, but he saw, he saw these clones in a catalog and um, he's like, hey, what's the deal? Uh, that's, that's my genetics out there. And we have a deal. And the guy said, yeah, but you know, money's tight. Times get tough. You know how it is. Um, you know, what, what can I do? And he said, well, we had a deal. And he said, yeah, but, you know, sorry. And this guy had zero recourse. That was his work. That's out there. They didn't even, they, they didn't have a contract. Maybe, I mean, they had a handshake agreement, and, some, and a lot of handshake, handshake agreements are actually enforceable contracts. But try taking that to court. If he had had a plant patent that he could have gotten for a few thousand dollars, um, he could sue the guy. Now, you don't want to sue anybody, but the fact is, if he'd had a plant patent, the guy never would have pulled that. Um, so, it's... Um, it's a matter of getting some respect for the work you do. Um, I learned plant patents working with grape breeders. Uh, Central Valley, these guys, when they when they breed grapes, and, and you know, I haven't worked with cannabis breeders that long. It hasn't been legal enough to do that for that long. But when I was working with grape breeders 20 years ago, they would, they would do crosses. They would literally um, plant 10,000 seeds. And then they 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 plant ten thousand seeds, and then they they're looking for something to reckon a week earlier than all the others. They they kill all but a hundred of those plants. Anyway, the bottom line is it takes them ten years to get something they can put in the stores, but they can plant a thousand acres and put it in the stores. You can bet that they're going to get a patent on that because all it takes is somebody to take one cutting. And they can go plant that all around the world. And if they don't have protection on it, what are they going to do? Now, let's extend that to a legal cannabis industry. Somebody, you might think you're a small guy. You might think, hey, I'm just doing this because I love it. But yeah, you love it. And then it's valuable. Is your work valuable? Is your time valuable? You're, you're doing it because it's valuable. And you're working with people you trust. But everybody's, everybody's under pressure. Everybody's trying to pay a bill. And next thing you know, the guy that you trust, you know, maybe maybe you trust him, but then somebody else can take a cutting. And that's the problem with plants. And that's the reason that Congress came up with the plant patent statute. Because it is so easy. You only have to have one cutting. If you take one cutting, 
and you make some clones and you make clones of the clones and maybe the person you gave the clone to you trust but then what happens to the next person that, that you don't know that you never met and before long that's that's out there and you don't have any recourse but if you have the plant patent it doesn't matter who gave it to who gave it to who gave it to who when you find that that patent is out there and um it's it's unauthorized you can stop it and so it is it is very much like a copyright that whoever's making illegal copies you have some recourse and you can stop them and if it's if your time is worth it if your effort is worth it it's it's really the only way that you can that you have that you have any recourse to do something about um illegal copies well wait a second is it the only recourse or is it also possible to consider something like um like licensing you know because one of the questions that i have and something that we've talked about internally a lot is that uh actually deal when you need yourself really quick because we're getting through early feedback sorry um but you know one of the questions that we've gotten a lot is or, or some of the things that we've discussed internally are one you know, just because you spend money on getting a plant patent doesn't necessarily mean that you'll get a return on your investment. So that's A, and I think it's an important thing for folks to consider when they're thinking about intellectual property protection. Two, one of the things that I think is really interesting um, is that, you know, and, and really part of where my interest is, is I'm really interested in protection for older genetics and protection for like heirloom genetics and, and like finding ways to really create value there. And I find it really interesting because, you know, the intellectual property system as we see it currently or as it works currently really, um, really benefits the new and the novel. Um, and so there are all of these questions about, like, well, okay, cool, we can figure out these protections for new kinds of plants, you know, um, but what do we do for the older plants? And so, you know, number three, that kind of leads me to... So, you know, we have this, you know, from where I sit, like, it seems like there's this, like, really awesome open source culture in, um, you know, within the cannabis community. And I think that, you know, what I want to see and what I'm really hoping that the work that we can do this year helps to do is to create really solid open source frameworks that work with the community and that also have really solid legal protection. Now, that said, I think that what's important is that we, we do not, like, just make a blanket statement and say that patents are bad, that like, you know, figuring out intellectual property protection is bad. But I also think it's important to um, like think about this in a really kind of like nuanced way, um, specifically with regards to, you know, when is it really valuable to get something like a plant patent? Like, you know, and actually, Dale, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Like, if you, you know, because most, I would argue, and tell me if I'm wrong, but there's a lot of cannabis that's out there, especially like, you know, that's on the market. And it's kind of not really that distinct from like a chemical level. Like there's a lot because there's been so much variation. And I almost see it as like there's like this big pool or matrix of like chemical compounds that are sort of out on the market. So, you know, which is part of why we're trying to document all of this stuff so that we can figure out, okay, what is in the public domain? And then necessarily like what's the border between the public domain and plants that are actually novel and unique enough to warrant something like a patent. So. Um, I don't know, that, those are just like some thoughts to throw in there. And I, I should apologize, I have a little bit of a sore throat and I'm a little bit stuffy, so I might be a little bit rambling. Well, you sound great. Oh, cool. Yeah, I love that concept you've got too. I mean, yeah, I, I feel a lot about what you feel. But I'd like to know the answers to some of those questions myself. I like that, that was very good. I mean, yeah. when people make it, 
I didn't mean to cut you off there. I'm no, sorry. no, go ahead. I'm, I'm done. When I'm people sorry. make the F1, you know, they auto, a lot of them automatically think, oh, this is the new, the new hype strain. And, um, you know, sometimes it might be if it's the perfect combination, but there's such, you're right, there is such a broad amount of strains, especially with the older strains and everybody having cuts of some of these older strains. Who knows? Like, it's a really interesting subject. And I'm really interested in the tissue culture, most of all, because, Dale, how you talk about somebody taking a clone and then that guy taking a clone from a clone, I mean, really, is all they need? What is a piece of a shoe tip, one node, you know, and and that's it. I was I was just gonna say, um, and this is something I often use when when I hear people that say they're gonna they're super eager to uh, to patent their stuff is okay. Well, the typical um, like standard for standardization for uh, patenting a strain a cultivar and other plants is an F seven. And how many cannabis strains are actually out to an F7? You know, so so is is cannabis going to get a different set of rules than a normal agricultural product, uh, or or because of its um, medic, you know, medical compounds, or will it be treated the same way? Um, you know, given that it's just a plant. I think we should maintain that standard if we can. But you're right, if we don't have as many. Well, there's so many, you know, because. I, I think Mr. Green Jeans could actually chime in on here on this because of that too, because he likes to take and do new things with genetic, you know, I mean, not, okay, I don't mean to label him in one box because I'm he's the older all, but, but he likes to take advantage with stuff instead of overstabilizing strains. Where we're talking about F7, you're talking about over, you know, like stabilized and all that. Excuse me, Roger. I'm one of the few people who has taken a strain past F7. I've well, done three now. No, I believe that, but I'm saying you, you also like to, like you <laughs> say, you like the freedom of not having it so stabilized, right? In that yeah, well, I'm just always, I'm just always, I've just been breeding, you know, five, six generations a year since for 40 plus years or whatever. I've just been doing it a long time, you know. Yeah. So I got, I have a number of strains under my belt. I, all kinds of crosses, all kinds of things. A lot of experience with that. But yeah, I mean, I would say that to really call something a strain, it surely should be inbred exclusively at least six or seven generations, I'd say. I mean, and even that with cannabis doesn't necessarily uh, stabilize in the sense of what the way we use the word stabilize. And you know, you might not want it to be that way. Like cherry bomb is probably you know, is quite variable still, even though I probably inbred that about 12 or 13 generations before I sent it out. Um, you know, so <laughs> there's a lot of variability left still. In it. Sorry, what did you say, Dutch? I was going to ask a question. I think it's your, your scenario is a perfect uh, way for me to ask a question. So, say you, you hang out, you can take these ones out with some patent, that patent on cherry bomb. And he finds out that someone else has been working with it, and he wants to take action on that. With most legal things, and maybe I'm just doing a statement question, but I want some clarification: is what is your core? How do you back that shit up, right? Because usually, like to go you, to, to back anything up legally, even my easement here, I have to have money to pay a lawyer to go deal with this shit. Uh, are there any other protections in this sector for? for 
those less economically successful? I'm going to let Dale answer that question because I think that he has some <laughs> thoughts. Um, but uh, but I have some ideas, but I'm going to let the lawyer talk first. Go, lawyer. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> well, good question because um, I think this all assumes that uh, that the, the strains that you're going to patent or the strains you're going to protect have enough value that that, um, that the infringements are, are going to um, are going to hurt enough. That, that you're going to want to sue some that, that, that is going to basically merit taking somebody to court. But taking somebody to court is very expensive. Now, with a plant patent, um, the the infringement uh, should be so clear that you'd never have to take them all the way to trial. And so, um, you'd probably be able to, to get in and out of that process. Um, relatively quickly and inexpensively, but even there, when you're talking about federal federal court, relatively quick and inexpensive is still not quick and inexpensive. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think when when you ask a question like that, you're really making a good point that um, if you um, if you're not talking about a strain that is going to be worth you know, um, $100,000, then you probably don't want to do it. Well, the, reality is, the reality is most of us are holding strains that definitely are worth the value, but we don't, we don't, none of us have the money to back it up, you know, and just ensure cannabis culture in general, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would like to circle back to something that, that Beth said, <coughs> just, to, just to close the loop on it. Um, I think licensing absolutely has place. Um, the, one of the challenges of licensing um, is that licensing uh, only works between the parties that sign the license or the, the parties that participate in the license. And when something escapes beyond the people that participate in the license, it's hard to bring it, it's hard to bring in the parties that don't have what is called privity of contract, people that, that aren't participating in the license. Um, unless you can get them for uh, something like possession of property that doesn't belong to them. Um, uh, and that is, again, if we're talking about a, a, a strain that has high value um, that would be worth patenting, then anybody who's in possession of that strain can be accused of infringement. But, um, yeah, I mean, there there are different kind of degrees of scale here. If, if if you've got a um, a strain that means a lot to you, and that you are are going to be um, doing some things, some commercial things with, in a scale that um, might generate some value, but probably won't generate six figures of value, then yeah, I wouldn't patent it. I wouldn't patent it. What I would do is is just work with people you genuinely trust, and if you trust them but maybe not completely, then do some written agreements. And that's where that would be what you'd call licensing. And then, yeah, just spend um, maybe your own time doing written agreements, and that's a lot less expensive. And 
um, enforceable enough. Yeah, and that kind of, um, oh, sorry, um, uh, I'm not gonna ask you to meet yourself again, sorry. I would meet you if I could, but I also like what you have to say. Um, but that really echoes something. Um, so at the first uh, Science of Organic uh, Regenerative Cannabis Cultivation Conference in Vancouver, um, Kevin Jodry made a statement. You were so, so hired to be able to say that. Hey, well, I've been practicing. I love that conference. And so I'm like, I got to get this right. I can also just call it SORC if you want, you know, so. Yeah, if you would I think that, I think that. Yeah, totally. Um, but, you know, he made a really good point and, you know, it's something that really stuck with me because um, it applies to both information as well as genetics and information is kind of my nerdy world of choice. But once you let your genetics out into the world, you kind of don't, you kind of can't really control where they go. And so really, I think that this is one of a really important concept for us to talk about here, which is that, you know, having a license in and of itself is not enough to protect you, right? It is like one important step. It is a legal document, it is a contract, it is something for you to fall back on. But like, you know, you wouldn't give some seeds with an open source license to Monsanto, right? You know, like you, or you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't give it to somebody that you just like, whatever, I know that they're just gonna go and put that into some, if you don't want them to put it into a proprietary strain, but you know that that's what they're gonna do, like don't give it to them, you know? And so I think that there's part of this like, process where we talk about this that really is about like okay what are the like specific legal strategies that we can do that or that we can use and then also like how can we be smart about this you know what I mean and I feel like the good news is is that I mean y'all have been working together for a long time and you've got some pretty good spidey senses when it comes to you know who to trust and who not to trust so you know you you got that pretty well honed so that's a good thing um, but, you know, the other thing is like, you know, when we, you know, kind of like coming back to Open Cannabis Project and like data stuff, like this is where, you know, we really want to think carefully about open source and like what kind of sort of like what level of open source we want to work with, with um, our data and genetic, like genetic data as well as chemical data. Because, you know, once information is out in the world, you also really can't control where it goes. You know what I mean? Like, everyone's done the thing where they've, like, said something to their friend, and then their friend told another friend, and their friend told another friend. And now suddenly, someone who's, like, five degrees of separation has some piece of information that's sort of different than what you said, but they have it. It's weird, whatever. Um, yeah, so genetics and information, to me, work really similarly, which then speaks to just being really careful and really thoughtful about how you share that, how you share that genetics, or how you share that information, and with whom you share um, that information as well. And then, you know, that kind of feeds into, like, getting more philosophical. I think that, like, one of the sort of, like, dualities on the table with a lot of this stuff is, you know, on the one hand, like, Protective Mama Bear Beth is like, I want to help all the cannabis farmers protect your work, right? You know, but then also like free thinking open source Beth is like, well, but we want for all this information and we want to be, we, we want to be able to share information. We don't want to start siloing information. When we silo information, when we silo genetics, like that's actually not good for genetic preservation. That's not really good for innovation. So like, I don't know, I'd be interested to hear from the group, including Dale, but also the folks here on the call, like, you know, what do you think is kind of a good balance between like protecting yourself and your work and then also like sharing information and sharing genetics on a wider scale? I, uh, I, I, like, what, I like what Dale was saying. I, I don't know, just kind of rang true, like to put a dollar value on, a realistic dollar value on what you're, what you're holding, you know, and it's going to have, if you think you can extract 
that money out of it. Uh, you know, you have a business plan to extract that money out of it, then it's probably worth taking some, you know, initiative and putting some money aside and being ready, you know, making with that and having some money set aside to enforce it if necessary. There's a lot to put God on board on in there and extracting the, 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 uh, the currency out of uh, strain, you know. Uh, and, and well, and I, I think a big part of it too is that you know, from a point of view of, of the consumer, the person buying the seed, um, you know, if it's not, you know, stable enough, you know, if yes, you're going to have to phenome hunt. It's part of cannabis, but it, you shouldn't have, you know, you should get a lot of, of decent ones out of that. You know, it, it should be stable enough. You know, again, to an F5 and F7, you know, some kind of actual work not just hey you bought two things online cross them and that happened to not be patented and now you got a strain um, you know you should have to actually put some effort in and, and you know if you look at some of the work that mr. green jeans has done or some of the work that you know all the other breeders you know that Josh has done and some of these other people that have been and, and Malik spider and everybody else that has put a lot of work into breeding these strains and developing their own strains and and I know I've done a lot of work with, with um, aquaponic CBD strains specifically and I, I don't talk about it much on the show but there's some really cool stuff that I have that I've shared a couple of beans with Mr. Green Jeans and a couple of other people um, that I've been working for quite a long time, you know, so and, and, and that, that's why, you know, there needs to be a, a minimum level of work um, in order to actually claim that. Um, I remember back when, um, do you guys remember the, the guy from Big, was it Big Buddha Seeds or whatever, tried to patent the cheese strain, uh, even though he did not develop it. I you know? remember um, that was completely ridiculous, you know, and, and they had no right to it. And that's also, you know, part of, that was one of the reasons that got me so wild and against patents until they actually understood how it could actually help someone that's a small breeder and not just be a way for corporate cannabis to come in and push us out. Um, it actually gives us a weapon, you know, in our quiver that we can use to fight back and, and protect our genetics and keep them from, from look, look at what happened with Charlotte's Web. You know, uh, Kevin Jodry just talked about that last week, about how they got a couple of cuts from Wade Laughter and, and did a little, you know, crossbred it with one other one. And, oh, we have a new fucking perfect strain. Well, actually, you didn't do anything. You know, they did very minimal amount of work for that. Then they built a whole lobby group that tried to push out anyone else except for them in other states. And I'm just saying, you know, using it as an example of what can happen if you don't have protections and you can get totally bent over like what happened with the case of Charlotte's Web. Oh, wow. Yeah, when Mr. Green Jeans talks about the F7, that's, uh, that's amazing. And somebody like me that's a new breeder, I've always been like kind of open source, just giving my genetics out, take a clone, you know, that way I know I can get it back later if I was ever to lose it. Breeding seeds, giving them free uh you know just to build my brand and you know some starting out and like you said you have to have that spot where you finally decide where it's worth it and like dale said where you have enough money to back your own you didn't exactly say money but where you can afford to go to lawyers and patent your strains and and you can do both. you got that something something special like that cbd you're talking about steve oh my gosh that sounds really special and see, uh, that's something I wanted to say as far as Mr. Greenjeans, because he bugged out. I, I'm not sure if he lost whatever, what, or is he back? He back there? He's back. I think he's back. All right. All right. So, he, see, I didn't mean to say that he didn't have F7s or whatever. I meant to say that he likes to do like you do. 
where he takes a couple of killer, he picks out a killer male and a killer female, from my understanding, and then he breeds seeds and then he just gives them to people, you know, and so that's that's really cool. But, you know, there's no doubt over 30 or 40 years that he's got stable strains. And, and in fact, what I was getting at is the fact that Dale brought up or, or, or you know, was brought up about, no, actually, uh, Josh brought up the question about what would be yours. And it's funny because Mr. Green Jeans gave Cherry Bomb to everybody. Swami. And then one guy took it on and Swami. he ran out of it. And he's allowed it to be credited to that guy. So, I mean, Swami. in a way, that, that would be commercial. There's, there's a lot of other people, you know, smaller private groups and stuff that have saved Cherry Bomb, too. I got, like, you know, friends in England and that I'm yeah. in communication with on ICMAC. Oh, yeah, people got it all over. But it was just that Swami was, you know, was commercially uh, distributing it. So, yeah. And I had some trouble with some other people before that, like Reefer Man, and uh, I, I probably shouldn't be talking about it. I don't want to talk about that. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to talk about that bad shit, but yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I was, I was, I guess I'm the guy that started uh, trying to do the open source cannabis thing, trying to give away, you know, because after a while you have so many responsibilities as a breeder, you're going to collect a lot of different seed lines. You're going to have a lot of things, and you know, and, and Cherry Bomb was obviously very valuable and had spent many years in breeding it. So there's a lot of work involved. And, and I know that, you know, one one of the really useful things about a, a true breeding strain is having uh, males, males that don't necessarily need to be, uh, you know, chosen. We were asking about people always ask about how do you select a male? Well, one of the best ways to select a male is, you know, from a true breeding and inbred line uh, because he's, you know, sort of pre he's like representing his strain and stuff. Anyway, don't want to go into that, but, you know, the. The, that's sort of that's one of the values of an inbred uh, of having inbred lines, but but outcrossing is great too. I mean, uh, you know, at this point, I guess I just I feel like I feel like uh, as a breeder that you know you can you can kind of just stay ahead of the game. You can kind of just keep on doing art. You know what I mean? As I can I can keep on I could breed three or four or five generations a year indoors. You know under lights and I can come up with something next year that's pretty damn bitching <laughs> just combined with things that you give me this year you know so uh, I, I patented yeah but I can kind of I could just kind of keep moving faster than you know, I can move, move really quick too you know um, dude and that's so legit like that is so legit I've heard that from so many people too that it's like okay that's fine that like as you know, an artist as Right, you're an artist. Like you're the only one yeah. who knows what you're doing. And also, like, if, if when you go and create some beautiful thing, and then you shared, you know, information about what that beautiful strain is with the world, it's going to take people like time to actually like yeah. catch up with you, right? And so, like, I show them a pedigree, and they go, "Oh, well, you're just giving me all the secrets. You know, I could just do the same thing." And I'm like, "Yeah, no. <laughs> okay, just try it." Yeah, yeah. You know how long it took to phenom hunt the right That's males and females? And that's I that's can show one. you how to mix the paints, you know. I can I can show you how to mix the paints and I can show you how to put them on the canvas, but you're not gonna make a painting like me. Yeah. <laughs> you know no, what I mean? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And that's my whole like that's I think one of my things that I've kind of like 
again, like, uh, this is like a little bit of like my mama bear horse. And by the way, I, I like don't have children. So I'm like, okay, great. My, this life is, or this project is my child or whatever. Um, but like y'all's value and your knowledge is so high. And I think that what we've seen a lot with this first wave of the green rush in many cases, and not all cases, but in many cases, is people getting sold short, is people giving away their knowledge and them being like, I've heard so many stories of people being like, oh yeah, such a, you know, such and such company wanted to consult with me, never paid me a dime. I gave this, them all this information because there was this like carrot dangled in front of me, yeah. uh, you know, some money in the future, and then you're written out of it. And so this is where I'm like, okay, like y'all's knowledge is invaluable and you should be compensated for that knowledge. You should have long, if you are going to go the commercial route, then I feel like you should be able to have some kind of like long-term payout. And then like, if, if somebody is basically using your work and your knowledge to make a long-term investment for themselves, then I would like, in my world, ideally, I would love for you to also be a beneficiary of that investment. So, um, yeah, so I'm just <clears throat> agreeing with a lot of the things that are being said here. Pedigree. Pedigree is everything, you know. The pedigree pedigree shows the amount of work you put into something. If you've got a nice long pedigree there, it shows, you know, that represents the, the labor and, and the lore. The story is what you're buying when you buy genetics, when you pay for seeds. You know, you're paying for the truth, right? <laughs> that's the, that's what the reader is actually selling is the truth. Sounds like you and Kwame should go to get get with Dale and Pat and fucking Cherry Bomb is what it sounds like to me. I guess. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. don't. <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Cherry Bomb is so far in the past for me. I, it's so cool. I'm growing it again. You know, I've got pure Cherry Bomb plants again in my garden yeah. after five years of them being gone. It's amazing. And I'm so glad I, I you know, it was such a great decision to to push it out into the public domain. And I know that a lot of people, you know, have a lot of other breeders have been able to uh, use it well because a true breeding strain really is good for crosses. You know, that's what it's really good for, um, you know, especially. So, you know, I think I was, I, I, I feel really good about that. It's fantastic, man. I've, been, I've gotten so much good vibes back from the community for for just doing that alone, you know what I mean? So I, I really recommend everybody else do that. You guys all work towards that, all you younger breeders do the same thing. You know, seven generations isn't that long indoors. You can, you you should be able to pull the seeds out of and push through at least three or four generations a year. Um, it isn't really that bad, you know, get your containers down. <laughs> Call me, send me an email, we'll, we'll talk, I'll explain the whole thing to you. It's not that hard. <laughs> That's awesome. I love yeah. that. I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, yeah. I was going to ask Dale, uh, like, what's uh, approximate cost for like a plant patent? You know? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> typically, you can get one filed for between um, $5,000 and $7,500. And, um, and then it usually doesn't cost very much to get it allowed. Um, so, you should be able to get through the whole process for um, between $7,500 and $10,000. And um, it can be less. It depends on how uh, how prepared you are to give all the information to your attorney. And then um, uh, it also depends on whether the uh, patent examiner bounces it back at you. It's not uncommon for the uh, patent examiner to, to reject it once. 
because they like to see uh, more description, but they usually don't reject it twice. So um, I think if you if you set aside um, if you set aside ten thousand, you should be able to get in and out for that, and um, that's that's usually a pretty good ballpark. No, no licensing is that. Um, you talk about that like that's is it is it sufficient enough like if i write a contract you know i'm going to let you use this clone but I, i'm not going to let you you know reproduce it and sell the clone you can only use it to flower in your garden we just write that contract up is that a licensing agreement or is this a licensing agreement that needs to be filed with somebody um well uh you're asking about how about the cost of a licensing agreement or or how do you set it up or what, what what's yeah, the well, yeah i guess both um how do i say how do you set it up and is there a cost associated with it or is that something that uh like someone who's myself who's not a lawyer could just write a, an agreement yeah um the the main thing you want to do with the licensing agreement is really understand who the parties are and what you're trying to accomplish um Every one of them can be different. It really, a lot of it depends on the on the scope, the geography of what you're doing. Um, uh, a lot of it depends on the. There's so much involved. Every contract can be different, but uh, I think that the best place to start, almost with any contract, is for the parties to just really identify what it is that they're trying to accomplish, and um, come up with some deal points really just a simple list of what it is they agree on or they think they agree on or what it is they're trying to accomplish and you never I, I would recommend you never start just by writing an agreement that can be super cumbersome and really inefficient but if you can make a list of even just a handful of things that you agree on or that you think you agree on um, and negotiate those first and then um, and then get into another wave of more details and then go from there. Um, then once you've, once you've worked out the details, then you give it to your, your lawyer and, and, um, and have them write it up. Uh, I've done agreements that were as simple as a couple pages and, and not very expensive. And I've done agreements that were over a hundred pages and took a couple of years to negotiate because they were, you know, multinational and super complicated and super high stakes. And um, I'd, I'd be embarrassed to tell you how much they cost. Um, so uh, it, it, it's extremely variable. So one of the questions that I have, like kind of with like, well, two things. One is, you know, to that end, one of the things that Open Cannabis Project is hoping to work on this year um, is to um, work with, uh, we're putting together a breeder advisory panel and a legal advisory panel and the idea, or not panel, but boards. And the idea is for those groups of people to work together to create three to four standard licenses that really work for a few different like primary use cases for breeders and growers um, so that you can have a place to start with all that stuff. Um, you know, and of course, with any license and any sort of like legal contract, it's, you know, 
as as Dale and the other lawyers have uh, uh, gotten me to remind people, it's always important to check with a lawyer who's licensed to work within your jurisdiction so that you can make sure that you're not overlooking some weird local clause or something that might sort of like interfere with the contract. Um, but yeah, we're really looking we're really looking forward to doing that because I think that that will be a really helpful tool for a lot of people so that. You know, because there, I mean, there's always going to be some situation that's a little bit different, but at least to have a place to start is going to be great. Um, so the idea is, you know, draft three to four contracts and then actually have them available for public review and then to like make them available as sort of open source, um, open source contracts for people that they can, or at least open source contract templates that they can use. Um, and I can imagine that some of them will be for like open, like open breeding kind of related use cases, really similar to. Um, Strainly has this really awesome open cannabis license uh, that I like a lot, um, and you know my only qualm with it is that it's uh, it's built it's based on German law, um, and because the United States, being the little special snowflake that it is, has not signed the uh, Convention on Biological Diversity, it doesn't really have the same teeth here. Um, but I'm excited to make I think a version of that license and then a few others that can be made available to people. Um, and then the other question that I have, I think for Dale and for the rest of the group is like, you know, how, what, I mean, one of the questions I'm really looking to try to answer is, you know, legal fees are expensive. Um, breeders and growers have gotten hit so hard this past year, like so hard, you know, and like, I'm, I'm like, I'm new coming into cannabis. Like I started in the cannabis world, like late 2017 or early 2018, like just as everyone was getting their ass kicked. And it has been devastating to witness. And so, you know, one of the other questions that I'm interested in figuring out is like, how, like, what are some, what are some ways that we can, in addition to like working together and figuring out some standard licensing agreements, like what are other sort of um, methods and organizational systems and ways that we could think about pooling resources so that we're not, not every single breeder has, I mean, I love you, Dale, and I want for people to pay you lots of money, you know, but like, you know, how can we make it so that like, you know, 10 breeders can still get legal services and, and afford it, you know what I mean, versus like one person going to a lawyer at a time, or is that, or is that just high in the sky thinking? You have to start with a co-op, and then you have to, once you get the co-op of the growers, you get the community involved in the co-op. So that you can that will generate enough income for you to afford a lawyer. I was oh, gonna, wow. And, yeah, and and um, yeah, you have to get a co-op. It's just like if you want to grow vegetables in a, a, an area, the only way to make money against the big corporate giants is you have to get ten or twelve different farms to be a co-op, and so you go together to make your money, and that way you you're able to form a legal fund. I mean that. My, my, I come from a family where my mother was involved in the law, you know, for, for her whole career. So, you know, I, I think about that kind of stuff. You know, it allows you, uh, you have better access as a group than you do by yourself. The problem is they've banned co-ops in a lot of the places that grow weed. So um, you, you can't legally, like most of California, you can't do a co-op. Colorado, I'm pretty sure you can't oh do co-ops. Uh, you can't do co-ops in, uh, Josh, correct me yeah, if I'm I wrong, in Washington. Nope. Um, so uh, you have to have, it's all disclosed uh, ownership and disclosed funds. Yep. Even if I want to, even if I want to use the money I made from growing and selling legal cannabis to oh. you know, upgrade, put some new lights in my facility or whatever, build a new greenhouse, uh, I have to get those funds approved, embedded by the liquid 
cannabis board. Well, you you have to take care of your own farm with a co-op. It's just that you pull your resources and put in money for the fund, like for a legal fund. It's not about, uh, I'm not sure because you, because it didn't sound like you still have to take care of your own farm. My question is, my question Uh, is, we're still allowed co-ops here. Could you form a club, a a, a club or other type of organization that you could then, you know, pay, pay fees to and do it that way? If you can't do a co-op, because I you know I did a lot of t- work with the um, uh, aquarium clubs, uh, both on the East Coast in Philadelphia and in New Jersey, and um, you know I know that's that adorable. They, by uh, the way, sorry, <laughs> aquarium club, yeah, yeah, um, and then also definitely uh, my, cool. My parents are really involved with the Corvette clubs, and I know both of them have very structured stuff. It seems like there's already kind of a template for how to fund, how to set those up for taxes and everything else. And it seems like that, maybe that would be an avenue. Obviously you wouldn't be able to use your cannabis funds um, without some kind of, uh, you know, legal gymnastics or uh, a very good accountant, well, but. Um, <laughs> uh, you you know. kind of read my mind if I can inject real quickly back to what I was saying and what you, and then you took me kind of like you read my mind is that, well, think about all the young generation and the and the politics going on right now. They just write their own rule, and I and I would love to hear from Dale after I say what I'm saying. But we just change it if it's not a co-op. If you can't have a co-op, like Steve's at a club, or figure out a different name or some kind of way that you could create an entity that create that was had several growers or several farms or a whole network of people across the country. Like, you know, it's going on with this, uh, you know, regenerative organic cannabis conference. Thank you, Josh. I think, I think um, Dale's probably uh, the best but, person But that to kind of idea where we just change yeah. our name and so that we get around the law. Is that possible, Dale? Here's an idea. I'm, I'm not exactly sure how you organize this, but imagine you're, you know, the next Emerald Cup or something. And, um, okay, you think about how Costco and some of these other places get their crazy prices. They negotiate volume rates, right? So you get together with a bunch of your friends and you go to some lawyer um, and you say, all right, my friends and I want to negotiate a volume discount um, with you. We're going we're gonna to bring this number of plant patents to you or we're going to bring this number of contracts to you. And, um, you know, we're going we're gonna to want to get a discount on your rates um, because we we can we can um, we can bring you this much work. Uh, I bet you a lot of lawyers would say, "All right, well, let's sit down and talk about that." Um, I can't speak for other lawyers, but I, I bet a lot of them would. I I because suddenly you're a big client instead of a bunch of little clients. I I think you'd have some leverage there. Yeah, so so it is just that. So that's so there you go. There we got a we got a like a benchmark to kind of try and start out with. But yeah, I can't believe they actually could. I honestly can't believe you tell me that out west. You guys are oh you can't have a co-op. Since that's just like you're going to get American <laughs> welcome, way. Well, you know, I mean, yeah. welcome like, to oh, the I upside just, down world of cannabis, where up is down, left is right, and nothing makes any sense, and it's all written in a language you can't read. Not the American. Way. <laughs> no, no, no. This is well. 
I, whatever. I'm like, but this is so American, right? Like, I mean, this is just like going for big business. I mean, this is what we've been doing for generations. I mean, how, I don't know, how un-American is that really? I feel that. I feel that. Uh, on that, so let me ask a crazy conspiracy theory question that I have Do had um, for quite a while, and it's something that I don't oh, want to give the government any ideas, but this is something I've been harping on for a couple of years, and I want to hear an honest answer from two people that could actually give me the right answer on this, because I don't think we've ever had anyone on the show. So my fear is that the government um, basically requires home growers to switch to auto flower so they can control production. And, and and basically only allow autoflower seeds for home you know for for sale uh, publicly at least for for home production. Um, this way they can make their tax money on each one and know how many plants you have uh, and, and to do some kind of regulation like that. So that's that's my crazy conspiracy theory on why I don't like autos. Is that well, something you guys could see? Just breed the autoflower traits out of it. You know, maybe incorporate in theory, into other trains and in eventually theory, but, but it's work something around that, that as well. It's a fear that I have, and it's one that I would love to hear. It, it, well, I think there's too many people. I'm not going to chime in for anybody answers. There's too many people out there with seeds. Oh, I don't doubt that. We got to grow our flowers. I'm, I'm just, with Malik. Uh, and, and I'm, you know, with and Dougie and every, all the people out there that breeders. There's a million Billions and billions and trillions and zillions of freaking seeds. They cannot stop us from going photo period cannabis. I'm just well, saying, I think actually, yeah. I would, I would say that, um, and I don't know enough about. You know, it's taken me a long time just to kind of wrap my head around how the law and all and everything works in the United States. Um, my understanding is that <laughs> there's just so much. Um, you know, my understanding is that. In some places in Europe, you're actually only allowed to grow seeds that come from certain catalogs. Um, and Dale, I don't know if you know more about this. Um, I, I remember having a conversation again from with Alan from Strainley about this a while ago, and I don't know specifically how it works. Um, but I actually, in the United States, given we actually, even though like we've definitely got some stuff that's really messed up, like I kind of don't see given the pathways that we have to get access to seeds currently, I don't see something like that happening here. I could see something like that happening elsewhere based on these other sort of like seed regulation laws. Um, but I definitely want to uh, hand over to Dale to speak to more specifics about that. I, I don't know actually anything at all about that. I haven't heard a word about it. and. Um, uh, yeah, nothing. I, I've been in conversations with you with USDA plant variety protection, and um, uh, frankly, I don't think they're remotely sophisticated enough to pull anything off like that. <laughs> Good. Uh, well, that makes well, me feel better. Dude. Yeah, that was the best best answer I could have gotten. Um, so, so you were talking yeah, about nice people, but yeah, not that, not that. Um, oh, oh, I've had it would seem like an impossible undertaking. That's a, that's my that was my point. I mean, how are you going to do that? You know, I really you couldn't stop them from growing when it was totally, you know, illegal across the board, and with the U.S. government paid other countries to, 
you know, they well, end up putting people in death for, you know, drugs. Right, you but know, Canada has... You can stop them from growing cannabis. Canada so only allows certified strains right now. Canada only allows certified hemp strains and certified cannabis strains for, for resale to the public. So it's already happening. Like, the, the thought of that oh, yeah, is, is absolutely, like, like Canada's doing something that's even worse than that, where they're, they're only allowing whitelisted white strains, in my opinion. opinion that's, yeah, they're, they're not even getting that, that much with them. Obviously, we have to remain committed to open source. 
Um, and so I can see a few different tiers related to open source reading. Um, and I can also see a few different tiers that are related to um, basically like commercial liability and the um, and the idea of like getting licenses like are getting royalties for the use of the strain in the long term. You know, but the answer to that question for me though, and so like that's sort of like high level sort of like wide um, watercolor strokes about like what that could look like. But really, I think that the process that we are interested in using is one that's like, okay, hey, team of readers and learners, um, what are sort of the different use cases that you see? And then based on that, like, how can we develop sort of some standard licenses to match each of these different ones? So um, I have some general ideas about how that would work, but I think that the, the specifics of what those different licenses might be will come down to, you know, what this team thinks is really, really works well for them. Awesome. And when I say the team, I'm talking specifically about our um, reader advisory panel, which we are slowly but surely, surely putting together. Is that a, is that better? Well, if you're is that better? Hold on a second. Hold on. Hold on. We had a reverb. Is that better, guys? All of a sudden, we were having some audio noise. I didn't hear it, so that was good. All right, cool. I think we fixed it. We're going to make voyage to the new uh, interface uh, tonight, so we're worried about uh, you know, how the quality of the broadcast. Yeah, sorry about that. We've had some technical issues. Um, for anyone listening to the audio recording version at the end of this, I do apologize. Um, uh, I think we're better now. Okay, I didn't mean to interrupt. I just wanted to fix that real quick. Yeah, no problem. I mean, I think that that's really most of what I wanted to say is that, like, then again, I, I guess I guess I would turn the question back to the group of people here. Like, you know, when you think about like, okay, I have these plants. I have, you know, some plants I want to keep for myself, or not necessarily keep for myself, but some plants are definitely like I know that they have high value. I don't necessarily want to open source them. And then maybe I have a ton of plants that I do want to open source. Um, I don't know. Like, what are kind like. How, how could you imagine different sorts of tiers to licensing that could work for you sort of at a, at a high level and spur of the moment kind of way? Awesome. I'm sorry, I was trying so to make sure. We had a, a request, Beth. I don't know. Somebody said your your audio got messed up the last two minutes there. I wanted to know if you could rewind. <laughs> rewind. I also I don't know. love rewind. Just like a quick summary. Yeah, rewind. yeah. Just a quick summary. A quick summary rewind. Well, I guess a quick summary. So the question was, what are the different tiers of licensing that you think could be useful? Um, and you know, the answer is like you know, at a high level. Um, I could see a few different versions of an open source license plus um, some yeah. kind of uh, plus some kind of license that also um, you know maybe is like it's a commercial license but that really you know focuses on getting like a long-term investment for um, royalties or some other sort of like long-term payout for the for the breeder um, as sort of like a little suite of licenses but I think for us um, it, within this process I think that the question is, really for the breeders and growers, like, 
what are the, you know, really identifying like, okay, what are the three to four different and maybe five or whatever, but like what are these few different use cases that you are interested in having sort of an agreement with like at a high level. And so based on that, like, th I think that that's how we would ultimately determine like what the different tiers of licenses are. Um, the whole process is really about defining with the community, like what really works for y'all. And then from there creating licenses that match. So, you know, to that end, I'm really interested in hearing from the folks who are on this call, like, you know, what are, what kind of licensing could work for you? Um, and we just heard from Josh that like, you know, something like select view. So maybe something that a license that allows for like free and open sharing within a collective or within a select group of people. Um, but then maybe more limited sharing outside of that group might be one type of license that, you know, we could think about creating it's a one kind type of license. And then also it sounds like maybe some other kind of like legal framework that we could think of creating. Um, but yeah, I'm interested in hearing from y'all like, heard, you know, yeah, I've yeah heard what of, do you think? I've heard of some, what comes to mind is what I've heard before is somebody saying, when you sell a clone to somebody else, they got to grow it up to your standards or they can't brand it as your clone, you know? So I think that might be one that could be useful, uh, possibly. That's useful and that's also really interesting because, so within the world of open source software, which, you know, a lot of times when we talk about open source cannabis breeding, a lot of people look at open source software as sort of a parallel and that makes a lot of sense um, because it is another world that is emergent. It is another world where there's a lot of information that was kind of underground and hidden for a long time. And then the patent office maybe tried to put some patents on some things that they maybe shouldn't have because they didn't have that information. Anyway. Well, you allow, to, you, allow to, you allow people to make it better. Yeah, exactly. You allow people to make it better. Like Malik and Mr. Green Jeans, they take their, they make a strain, they pick out a mother and a father and they say, this is the shit right here. They make a lot of seeds and they give them to everybody. Sure. And allow everybody to make it better. Right, exactly. And that is totally. That is, right, exactly. And that's totally valid. And that's a super awesome way to go about it. And some of the questions that people have about open source software is like, well, if it's open source, like you can't make money on it. Well, that's not entirely true. Like a business, a business plan that can work really well with something that's open source is saying like, hey, so this software is open source. Um, and, and, but it's also complicated and in order for it to be implemented in the proper way, what you need to do is actually hire me or hire my team to, um, come into your facility or come into your, um, into your grow and to make sure that we're helping you grow it. So now you actually have a system set up where it's like, okay, cool. I'm giving you my genetics, but that comes with you hiring me. Um, in order to be able to help you. And maybe that's not something that we need to do among people who are all within the same kind of collective community. But if you're thinking about a strategy for integrating open source genetics with um, a more commercial operator or a licensed producer, then that is another way to sort of think about doing it. Well, that's exactly how commercial greenhouse companies and all do it, like Crop King and everybody else. They sell you the seeds, they say the greenhouse, they come in there, you send a guy down, you pay money, he trains you to how to do everything for a while, and you know, and then he's, they, they can always send a field rep down to help you if you get in trouble. And so that's what you're, I think that's what you're talking about right there. So that's my, exactly right. My question I have for you two is, so for chemovars, how is it that they're getting a utility patent on chemovars when the chemovars change radically depending on grow method? You almost have to do a complete, in my opinion, a complete vertical of the cultivation included 
to achieve in order to achieve that chemovar um, or chemotype in that plant. Like for instance, I could take a strain and grow it in no-till soil, and the terpene and cannabinoid expression is going to be radically different than if I grow it in aquaponics with a dual root zone, and it'll be radically different again than if I do it at hydroponics. Or even if I grow exactly the same method, if I grow it in say Washington where, where Josh is, and then I grow it in say South Carolina um, uh, where, where some of our other people are at, or I, uh, you know, I grow it in, um, uh, uh, in uh, um, <laughs> sorry, I didn't want to give anyone away. Um, uh, so, or I grow it in Jamaica. You know, it's going to be radically different uh, in, in how the uh, you know cannabinoid and terpene expression is going to be just super radically different. So, um, you know, how is it that they're going to make that claim? Because you could even get a, a similar chemotype from a different strain w with a radically different grow method, or maybe that say those two strains or cultivars have the same chemotype um, based on that terrar or whatever like they're just going to express the same like like how is it that they can make a differentiation and then I have a, a follow-up question after that <laughs> I thought that was more questions yeah you have me a chemotype bro yeah I'm going to let I have some thoughts about Dale this is all you okay um, you get to be the expert witness for the defendant when those guys uh, sue somebody for infringing that patent because uh, the defendant is going to say, oh, that patent's invalid. There's no way those claims mean anything because they claim something without even understanding the plant. And then you'll get up there and you'll testify. Basically, you'll say what, what you just said. You'll say when they claim this, this stuff, they didn't even know what the hell they were talking about. And one of the things that a, a patent uh, application is supposed to, to do, one of the requirements for a patent application is it is supposed to enable uh, someone of ordinary skill in the art to make and use the invention in a way that is commensurate with how it is claimed without undue experimentation. And so if they are claiming certain chemical properties, then they have to be able to, they have to teach someone how to achieve those chemical properties every time without undue experimentation. And if they didn't teach someone exactly how to cultivate that plant to achieve those chemical properties, then they didn't meet the enablement requirement. Now, I don't have all 300 pages of that uh, patent disclosure or whatever in front of me, but from what I've been told, they didn't do that. And if they didn't, and the defendant calls you as the expert witness, and you need to say what you said. And um, if the jury believes you, then you know there will be a case. I'm not. I'm not actually rendering a legal opinion. I'm being entertaining. Yeah, yeah. But um, this, that's what this is: is entertainment and important information. And if this is how it works, then the defendant will win. Yeah, because that's that's been something that. That, and, and that leads into my next question because there's another gentleman I've seen online that, that is, works a lot with CBGA and he can synthesize a lot of those and he was like well I can just synthesize anybody's cultivar well how do how you know do they have a legal right to synthesize anything that someone's worked years to produce um, you know is, what, what would the legal protections be for a cultivator against someone say using yeast 
for some of these synthetic methods to replicate a, a, a terpene and cannabinoid profile in order to profit off of, you know, oh, this guy invented something that happens to be great for, for cancer or, or, you know, in theoretic, you know, or XYZ medical application. Um, then they want to come in and replicate it immediately um, without doing any of the hard work just because they, that, you know, you made the discovery and announced it. Uh, or they found out even through you know unscrupulous means, um, you know what kind of protections would be against someone trying to profit off of other people's hard work in that way? Well, I'm not sure I understand that question, but I'll just answer the question that you might have asked. So I'm I'm like being a, a, a presidential debate here. Um, You're being a good lawyer. Thanks, Dale. <laughs> okay. Um, when someone claim something that maybe they didn't invent, or maybe they claim something that isn't new. Um, it's up to the examiner to, to notice that. It's up to the patent examiner to, to find that out or to, to challenge them on it. And one of, the challenge, one of the problems in the cannabis industry is that the way this whole process works during patent examination is the patent examiner has to look at what the person is claiming and they, they take what they're claiming and they do a search on it. And they, they search for what is in the literature. And the literature is made up of other patents and it's made up of academic publications and commercial, uh, prior commercial activity. And what the problem we have is in cannabis is that most of what happened in cannabis um, up to a few years ago, didn't. There wasn't a, a, an academic literature, and there wasn't a patent, very much of a patent literature, and there certainly wasn't a commercial, a, a well-published commercial activity. And so the patent examiner is pretty much fine line. There might have been all kinds of things that were happening, but they didn't get published. So the patent examiner is um, blindfolded and taking wild guesses about whether what this person is claiming, whether it's really new or not. And so they do their best job of figuring out whether it's new and whether it's patentable. And they, um, they issue the claims. They take their best shot at, at, at deciding whether it's patentable. And then the person walks out of the patent office with this bright, shiny patent, and they're happy and proud about it. But nobody knows. Nobody can know if that patent is valid. Well, actually, maybe some people do because some people have been, you know, operating in the cannabis industry, and they look at that patent and say, "Oh no, no, that's not pat that's not valid because I've been doing that for thirty years." So there might be people who do know that that patent isn't valid, but they're, you know, they don't have any publications to prove it. Um, so they're just going to get sued, and when they do get sued. Then they bring out their personal evidence, or they gather their friends around them, or they talk to an expert and say, all right, um, time to go defend myself in court. Um, let's let's gather the troops here, and let's poke some holes in that path. So that's kind of how that will work. And um, we, as the Open Cannabis Project, and um, some you know people who care about this, want to help uh, build some of those tools. And to some extent, we want to help uh, educate the patent office and give them some better tools so they can do this examination. But the tools are very limited. Um, I started a website to try to do some of that called MJ Patents Weekly. 
uh, it's trying to get people to comment when a new patent comes out. It's, it, it tries to encourage people to comment on whether they think that patent is valid or not. Um, not it, that hasn't really caught on very much yet. It's mostly just entertainment. Hey, look at this crazy patent. Somebody has a camera that you put on the back of your tooth to see what what you're smoking this week or whatever. There's you know it's. It's a fun website, but it hasn't really got people up in arms about patents that are getting allowed yet. Maybe someday. But well, I think we also, are, I, to be fair, I I use MJ Patents Weekly. I find it very valuable because, you know, one of the things that, I mean, I definitely have some usability things that we can talk about on another call. Um, but, like, one of the things I find to be really helpful about that site is, you know, in order, I, I remember when, like, I first started, like, on this trajectory with Open Cannabis Project, people were like, well, what's the landscape of cannabis-related patents? And I was just like, I don't, I don't know, like, I don't know what the cannabis patent landscape is. And what mjpatentsweekly.com has really done is to outline, okay, what is issuing currently, what, um, what applications are being published, because there's, um, I think, a year and a half block between when a patent application is submitted and when it's made known publicly. So there's basically like a year and a half of patent applications that like no one in the public can see um, because they're being considered and all that kind of stuff. But what's really helpful about MJ Patents Weekly is that it helps you to see like, okay, and this has been really helpful for me because like Open Cannabis Project at its inception has really been about like preventing overbroad patents on cannabis plants. I am stoked to say that like it does not seem like there are all that many of these patents on the plants. So that's a big yay. Um, what's a little bit more um, challenging or worth considering is all of the weird patents that are occurring on different cannabis products. Like, you know, there is, you know, Dale just mentioned this patent on a camera that goes on the back of your teeth to see what you're smoking. There's also a tea formulation that's basically like uh, cannabinoids plus uh, green tea plus yerba mate plus peppermint plus stevia. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think that that's actually novel enough to warrant patent. And I think that that also feeds into some other challenges that we've seen in like the trademark office with regards to, you know, there was just recently a case where somebody pat or uh, trademarked the term fire cider. Fire cider is a traditional recipe, right? Um, the patent office or the USPTO had no business granting a trademark on it, but then somebody actually sent a cease and desist to people who were making fire cider, and they were like, well, wait a minute, this is like this older formulation, like, there shouldn't be a trademark on this. And so this is where it's like, okay, there's this like squishy area where there's a lot of work that's been done in like the herbalist and in the plant medicine community that is not being regarded as prior art by the patent office, and that's a problem. Um, and, you know, then there's all of, this, all, all of these other things related to inventions, but like, you know, ultimately, I mean, for people who are worried about overbroad patents on cannabis plants, there really is in the United States just one patent family that is questionably overbroad. Um, and the remainder of the really questionable patents have to do with formulations, they have to do with products, they have to do with teas, they have to do with, um, you know, a t-shirt, there's a design patent on a t-shirt that has <clears throat> the number 23 on it with cannabis leaves inside of it. So like now nobody else can make the 23 cannabis leaf t-shirt. Like who the fuck knows? Like, so there's a lot of stuff in there that really is questionable, but the good news is, is that like, it's not really related to plants, but that does then for us, like open up the whole of the question, series of questions, which is like, well, wait a second. So we have all these other, 
pseudo patents that are coming through, like what other kinds of data and documentation do we need to collect to help show that like, you know, that these patents maybe shouldn't exist. Um, so, so the other, I had a follow-up question. Now I forget what it was. Oh, so uh, actually, when I worked at the aquaponics source, I helped write and um, uh, 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 the patent for an aquaponics system that incorporated a waterfall, like which is you know how bullshit is that as far as like just overly broad, so that you know. But then you know you also had on the other end of it. I mean, look what happened with um, GW with with Epidolex, like. Come on, the, the the whole CBD thing. Well, there's government-funded published research from 1942 uh, talking about CBD isolation for use in medical application. So how the how are they going to go say that? You know, for, especially for CBD isolate. Even CBD isolate was actually first used in a medical trial. I think it was 44 or 45, right at the end of World War II. So how are you? You know, that's just completely ludicrous to say that 200 milligrams of of CBD. And do you actually do you want to talk about that? Because they actually lost the the vast majority of that patent filing. Yeah, their their patent scope has been knocked back some, and um, that's that's another one of the things that's encouraging. Um, it, it can be frustrating to see people getting um, broad patents, but and this is where I, I think I started earlier when I said. The system isn't perfect, but the system does work. There are some checks and balances in the system where people can, um, they can, when they get sued or, or when they're um, concerned about a patent, there are some things that you can do. You can, you can mount a defense that, that argues that the patent is invalid. There are some um, post-grant review processes to challenge the scope of a patent. And so definitely not in all cases, but in some cases, um, when a patent is too broad or when someone sues for patent infringement, um, uh, you know, there, there are some answers for that. And so uh, it's encouraging to see that um, in some of these cases, uh, there are some, some uh, corrections happening. I think that um, if anybody ever does get sued on those super broad uh, related patents, you'll see the cannabis community mobilizing, and some expert will step forward and, and um, make some arguments about some of this, you know, the, the, um, the uh, cultivation practices and some of the challenges with, with the way that those were claimed. My guess is that that might be why people aren't getting sued on those patents. So that even the patent owners are aware of some of the weaknesses of those, uh, those claims. Well, but, can it be as simple as DNA? Not, um, not when you're talking chemo. What, you, what do you mean by that? Well, if you've got a strain, I know we're arguing about you know whether somebody does keeps it up to a certain quality or whatever, but if, if you have a strain that, that you develop, like you take two and you actually develop a strain, that you know is your own uh, and you know it's your own wouldn't dna alone conclude that that is your strain and therefore you could prove or disprove whether somebody copied it you know, wouldn't that, or is that a whole nother field you know or way out there i mean that's been i've been wanting to ask that for a while and i felt like you just gave me an opening to throw that back in there Okay, absolutely. If, if you were accused of infringing a plant patent, 
and you knew that you had the copy someone's had, you could you could do a DNA test and you'd have a, a full defense that that um, you were not you were not guilty of copying copying their plant because of a, a plant patent um, that, that first type of plant patent that I was talking about is is only about that you can make a direct clonal copy. And so it would take a DNA, if it doesn't match the DNA, it wouldn't infringe. On the other hand, these uh, these utility patents that we're talking about, you don't have to be genetically identical to infringe. If you meet the requirements of their claims, which might be, okay, you've got this much CBD, this much THC, this much this terpene profile, but not this much mercine, it doesn't matter what your genotype is, as long as you've got these other characteristics, then then um, if their patent is valid, you're in trouble. Now, a lot of people believe their patents aren't valid, so that's another issue. But your genotype wouldn't matter at all if that patent is valid. Well, thanks. And I'm sorry to interrupt you, you know, because I know we've been basically talking about mostly utility patents, which is what you said was the real the hardship of the industry. But that, that's been bothering me all night about why can't we simply, you know, take care of it with DNA, and you gave a nice explanation for that. And the other piece of that, oh, sorry. I was going to say, do you want to touch on, the, you're probably going to say this, but do you want to touch on why that's important to get things genetically certified and genetic certification? Um, I actually was going to talk about sort of the, um, it's something related, but I mean, it. I think it is important for you, if you're really curious about what your cannabis plant is, it's a great idea to get it genetically tested. Um, I think that one of the challenges that we see from just sort of like the overall data landscape is that, um, you know, there's variations between labs and different people are going to be doing different types of uh, sequencing and different types of genetic testing. Um, they all have slightly different, um, I can't remember what the exact words are called, but there's basically there's samples that you have say what benchmarks something like yeah like benchmarks like there's benchmarks that you're testing against and every genetics company has a different set of, of benchmarks right and so you end up with a situation where it's like cool like you can genetically test your strain uh, your cultivar and you can have that kind of documentation available to you um but if it's if we're looking at genetic readings from two different labs we may not be able to compare apples to apples. And Dale, I'd love your, your take on this, but this is basically my understanding. And so I think that really the place where, like, well, one, I think that testing your genetics is really important because it's important to know what you're working with. And we just need, we have such a deficit of scientific knowledge because of prohibition that it is just imperative that we collect and share this data. And this is part of, you know, another reason why I'm really passionate about the work that we're doing. Um, but it is important, but like, I think that ultimately, like, if you were in a situation where, you know, somebody, you know, you think you have plant A and you're pretty sure that somebody is using your plant A and, you know, to do something or they're selling your clones without your permission, then you're going to want to test plant A and plant B, which might be plant A, probably at the same lab so that you can see that the, that the results are consistent. So, you know, it's important, you know, one of the things that is important um, from just like a prior art documentation perspective, from my understanding, is that it's a, it's a great idea to get some kind of timestamp report from a lab or another um, authoritative source about what plant material is so that you can have that record in the case of infringement. But it's also important to note that like, 
just, you know, genotype, just getting like a genetic test for your strains isn't necessarily enough in and of itself to fully like prevent the path. It's an important piece of documentation in an overall process, um, but it is not in and of itself like, you know, some kind of foolproof protection. Um, and part of that comes down to is like the other thing that that, that relates to is, you know, the patent claims that we see come through. And ultimately, again, like when we're talking about um, a patent examiner and their role with a patent, we're really talking about them like looking at all of the claims that are listed in a patent and then looking for things that are similar or different. The, the main over potentially overbroad patent family that's out there, the Biotech Institute LLC patents, you know, each of them, or at least a few of them, only refer, they only have one little tiny piece of that patent that's related to genetics. And um, I can't remember exactly what it is at this particular moment. But so what they're looking for is something that has, uh, you know, I, I guess claim one of 909-5554 is, you know, any hybrid cannabis plant with at least, you know, 3% CBD, uh, a 1% terpene ratio, and then this list of terpenes of which myrcene is not the most dominant. So, you know, the genetic information becomes useful in looking for the uh, the one set of alleles that are present within the patent, but then the rest of it is not applicable, right? And so... It's, I wish I could say that it's as simple as just, you know, genetically testing things, but being like, yeah, stamp, approval, this is mine, um, but it's a little bit more complicated. Well, I think that part of that is the fact that where is the database? There's not really a database. And where are the benchmarks? So we talked about that. That was sort of the case, but nobody really has that database to make those comparisons. That's right. That has to be built. The benchmarks are not there. I mean, we, that's a good way to start, though. You have that benchmarks, and then you build the database. So, yeah, it, yeah so. Yeah. Right, and, and ultimately, I think that this is, like, a big piece of what we are really interested in doing, right? Is like, it would be amazing, like, okay, data Beth is about to come out, but, like, it would be amazing to be able to have a bunch of different sequence data from a bunch of different labs all together in a place where we could actually compare all of these different bits of data and be able to do like really smart analysis about like what is what. Like I really think that we need to get there. And really I think that the basis of, you know, what we're trying to build with the Open Cannabis Project is exactly something like that. And then the question becomes like, you know, again, we, our goal is to keep, you know, cannabis available and free and open, especially to the people who have built this industry. So then the question is like, should that data be fully open source? Should that data be fully available for anyone to do exactly what they want with? I mean, I think it needs to be public. I need. I think people need to access it. But like, is the community okay with your your data being shared in a way that is so open that anyone can use it and then put it into their proprietary product for their own data analysis, etc. Um, but all that to say, I think that you're totally right on. I think that that's exactly a piece of the puzzle that we need to figure out. And part of what I want to know is how do we do this in a way that is not just like giving away information that people don't actually really want to give away, right? Like how do we do that? And how do we do that in an ethical and open way? Uh, on that note, I, I think you were, uh, I'm not sure what you, how you were involved, but I know you were uh, uh, at least partially or talked to people over at Phylos. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about what they, you know, their whole project and what they've done at least to, to help try and build some of that database to where it is now? And, um, I know there's a lot of wacky rumors, I know. I think I even, uh, uh, yeah, 
uh, heard one out there that they were bought by Hawthorne. That is not no true. What are you talking or about? This like, is yeah, so <laughs> I actually went and I actually went I, the, the one of the the head people from Phylos was actually at the regenerative conference and I asked him point blank and he was like, "No, absolutely. That is not the case. There's a lot of ridiculous rumors out there." So, um, I just wanted to say that um, and and you know, hey, they're 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 not owned by uh, Hawthorne or anything wacky like that. So, um, you know, for for anyone that's uh, heard any of the wacky stuff. So I'll let you talk about that. They're, they've done a lot of cool work to help map out a lot of the different stuff and, uh, you know, give us at least some starting point. Yeah, and I think that we absolutely, you know, at least within my role, it's important to give some kudos to Philos for that because, you know, it's really easy to, um, you know, criticize work that people have done. Um, but I would argue that also when you're the first person to do something, you're going to probably not do it exactly right. Um, and, you know, but what we have from Phylos is really a starting point of open data to look at with regards to these cannabis plants. Um, and I think that, you know, that is something that they, that they did on their own. Is like They were like, we are going to make this information open source. We're going to make it available to the public in part because we do need to have better transparency around how all of this works. And I think that that's really great. So now some of the questions that people are asking based on that are around like, okay, well, so the genetic and, you know, most of the genetic information that we have on a big cannabis project has come from Phylos. They are like, you know, like CPIL has open sourced a little bit of data. Nolan Kane has open sourced a little bit of data, but Phylos has really um, led the way with this. And so like that, and to me, that's really commendable. Um, you know, some of the questions that come up are, are around like, okay, well, how useful is the data? Um, and the reason that people are asking those questions has to do with the fact that the data is SNPs. And so actually, so for people who are like nervous about someone being able to take their genetic data from Phylos and then like 3D printing a plant, like that's literally impossible, one, because of just like technology um, limitations, but also two, because the genetic data that is present there is SNPs. It's like pieces. If you can imagine, it's like, you know, you've got this like long piece of genetic code and it's like a piece from here and a piece from here and a piece from here and a piece from here. And, you know, within the sort of like galaxy ecosystem from what I understand, um, you know, that really helps to sort of create sort of a, a relational system around that data. But it's not like a full 100% genetic sequence of the data. If you did want to go down the route of saying like, okay, I want to, you know, sequence my information and I want for that sequence information to be like basically my like barcode or blueprint about my plants, then you would want to go um, for something that did not use SNPs. You would want to go for something that used like a really full sequencing kind of platform to do that, which from what I understand is um, a bit more expensive um, and a bit more like there's more to it. And I would definitely want to leave geneticists and people who are actually doing that kind of genetic analysis to talk about those specifics because it is outside of my realm of like full 100% understanding. Um, but what I think so, but you know, to start the process of saying like, hey, this is what we have. This is what we know that we have. Um, we want for the public to know this. We want for breeders and growers to know this. I think it's a really commendable place to start. Um, and again, you know, with all of these processes, you know, whoever does something first is going to fuck something up, right? Like whoever does something first, like whether it is um, you know, you can think, you can think about like early sneakers, you know what I mean? Like, or like, you know, like 
like you know Converse and Keds and that kind of stuff. Oh, come on, early Converse. No, come on now. Don't okay, okay, okay. That's fair. But you know, if you're somebody who's like, well, wait a second, sneakers really need to have arch support, then you're going to be like, well, Converse, WTF, everything's super flat. Like, what's going on? You know. But like, we start. As with any kind of innovation, you know, we start with one thing and then we like keep on building it. And part of what's really important and exciting about open information is that it makes it possible for anybody to be able to build with it. And I think the main thing that's really problematic when it comes to cannabis is that, you know, cannabis and genetic data and sequencing data is that like, you know, we don't have great open source. Hi. Oh, hello. I see what you're doing there. I'm just wearing socks, so I have nothing to come back with right now. No, it's okay. But it's like, you know, like with um, uh, with open information and getting information into the... Oh, gosh, now I've lost my train of thought. Damn it. Sorry. No, it's okay. It's okay. Um, flat, flat shoe versus art shoes. Uh, yeah, I mean, we yeah, are to keep growing and, and, yeah, and evolving. Right. And like, we're all like building on top of this stuff. And ultimately, I think that like, this is where, well, okay, so two things. One is open source genetic information works best in an idealistic sense in a situation where growers and breeders like you have the same analytics tools that a company like Phylos Bioscience has. When you also have the ability to do analysis on that data in the same way that a for-profit company can, um, then that is when that information is the most beneficial to you. And so then that speaks to a need for maybe having more open source genetic analysis tools at our disposal so that, you know, you can actually do that analysis on your own. And that information is empowering to you versus just being like, okay, now it's out in the open, but only experts really know how to deal with it. So what do I do with that? Um, and then the other piece of that is that, you know, one of the things that, like, part of what I like about innovation and technology development and plant development and all of these things is the idea of, you know, we're all building on each other's shoulders. Like, we're all pulling on knowledge and information that came from the past. And part of where I have a really big problem with where things are at within the cannabis industry, um, and that this is true for both intellectual property and just for the greater regulatory schema, is that there's a whole group of people who are like, oh yeah, this is new. This is totally new. Like We know what's going on. And it completely writes out all of these people whose shoulders they are in fact standing on. And that is just BS to me. And that is the piece of the equation that we really need to change. And that's really the piece of the, of the equation that I'm interested in changing and that I'm pretty sure that the, my board at Open Cannabis Project is really interested in changing as well. So I hope I answered your question. I kind of went on a rant. Um, but yeah, we love it. You're the guest. You're supposed to rant. Um, I, don't, okay. I don't want to take up y'all's entire evening here. Um, is there anything you guys wanted to kind of say in conclusion here, uh, 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 Dale or Beth, as far as, um, you know, uh, what people need to know? Uh, and then I definitely want uh, Dale to let everybody know how to find out uh, how to reach him and his services. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. And, you know, I know you don't often, especially as a lawyer, don't share, all, you know, your level of knowledge. And I, I really appreciate you taking the time to come out and educate us all and, and, and help, you know, everyone better understand how to even approach using someone like yourself when the, uh, when the time comes on their own farm. Dale, you go first. I'm eating cauliflower. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, let's see. Where's my microphone? Here it is. Um, am I muted? No, you're good. Here we go. No, no um, uh, it was nice talking with you all and nice to meet you. I hope to uh, hope to see you in person at one of these upcoming meetings. And um, if you want to get in touch with me, my website for my law firm is Plant and Planet. That's the name of my firm, Plant and Planet. And my blog is easy enough. It's plantlaw.com. So you can find any one of the places, plant and planet.com or plantlaw.com. And then the, uh, the website that is updated every week with uh, MJ Patents is mjpatentsweekly.com. So any of those sites. Uh, I do hope to meet you all in person someday. Thanks. Are you coming to Ann Arbor? Right. Oh, well, okay. Oh, yeah. he's kind of off camera. Yeah, right. he made a statement and goodbye. He's like, you know what? Yeah. I'm tequila. No, yeah. I actually, so I'm bummed because I don't think that we are going to be in Ann Arbor. I would love to go, um, but I don't think it's going to happen. However, um, I think that, you know, one of the things that we are really committed to this year, um, you know, 2019 is the year of big questions. Um, and for me, the most important thing is holding discussions just like the one that we had today, um, probably doing things that are even more directed and sort of a workshop format that really are more about like, you know, people working together to figure out solutions that really work for them and their use case. Um, and so I would encourage people, if you're interested in being part of these conversations, um, sign up for our newsletter, go to opencannabisproject.org and um, get to go to get involved and sign up for our newsletter there. Um, you know, we'll be, uh, I'll be speaking in Eugene, Oregon uh, at, oh, I can't remember the name of this really cute gardening shop, but I'll be speaking in Eugene, Oregon on Saturday. I'll be at the NOCO 6 Hemp Expo in Denver at the end of the month. Um, and so I just really encourage people to, if you have thoughts, send me your thoughts. If you want to have a discussion, like get in touch with me. Like the whole point of all of this is to really figure out systems that really work well for this cannabis, for the cannabis community. And I can't do that without you. So be loud, get in touch and get involved. Like I am really excited about building better legal and data sharing tools with everybody. I think it's super exciting. And the way that you compare the data and open source data, like the way Joe Rogan talks about it in his podcast, and then you compare that to the plant world and how right now uh, it's just blowing up everywhere, uh, you know, especially Canada and Michigan. I'm in Michigan myself, and there's just so many new people breeding and doing so many new things. The tissue culture also is very interesting to me, and uh, we didn't get into the preservation of that. Yeah, we didn't get into that. Yeah, but I, but I look forward to talking about that more. And hey, there's Dave back. Hey, Dale. We're just getting ready to talk to tissue culture, man. We're missing him. Oh, good. Yeah, we wanted to talk about the tissue culture. We never talked about the tissue culture. I was just trying to mute and hang up button. Sorry. Oh, you're fine. I'm back. I did that earlier. Well, I feel like we could have a whole other podcast on tissue culture. So it's like, oh, yeah. 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 We'll, I get, know. we'll get them back on again so that we don't eat up their whole evening. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I appreciate uh, appreciate everyone's time. So, uh, yeah. So, um, so, uh, so uh, why don't you uh, tell everyone how they can support Open Cannabis Project and what you guys do? 
uh, and um, and how they could reach you if they want to get involved and, and kind of what you can offer them, um, you know, uh, in closing. Sure. So what I'm hoping to, um, so if you want to get in touch with me, um, go to info at opencannabisproject.org. That goes to me as does Beth at opencannabisproject.org. And any other email for Open Cannabis Project probably goes to me right now. So just send me an email. Um, you can follow us on Instagram at Open Cannabis Project. Um, that's really the, the platform where we're, we're the most active. And, you know, I think that what we are really looking for right now and where people can really help out are we're looking for opportunities to um, have discussions like this either online through webinar or in person, like with your group or with like a group of farmers and leaders um, to really help to like identify like what these needs are. So, you know, we're putting to, you know, some people have suggested like you should go on tour and do a bunch of workshops on tour and like that could be cool. We could also do a lot of this work online. That could be cool as well. Um, but if you know of, if you have one, if you have thoughts about this and about, you know, you're like, no, this is exactly what I want for licensing. I've already thought about this. Like, send me your thoughts. I'm super happy to get you, get involved that, have you get involved that way. Um, and also, if you have an opportunity for us to come to your conference to speak to your Growers Association, um, please get in touch with me. Like, these are exactly the kinds of conversations that we're really looking to have and we're really looking to use having these conversations as a way to put together licenses and other tools that are really meant to put the ownership and really meant to put the um, the agency back in the hands of farmers and breeders who I think through regulations have had a lot of that agency kind of taken from them in ways that are unfortunate. So yeah, get in touch. Let's talk. Let's figure it out. That's what this whole year is all about. Awesome. I appreciate it so much. Um, it was so wonderful to have you guys on tonight. I know it's been a it's often a controversial topic, patents, and you guys really broke it down in a way that made it easy for everyone to understand and, and to understand why it is that they would want to do that for their um, for their own grow and, and how it actually might be a benefit to them and something that they were kind of afraid of or against before. And I know after hearing your talk, you totally converted me, so that's why I wanted to bring you on. So I really right. do appreciate it. So, oh well, thanks, thanks, you guys. I really respect what y'all do, and it really made your way. So, um, thank you for making really great herb, and for attending to the earth, and for being awesome. And I just want to do what we can do to help protect that. Amen. Awesome. Oh, she hit the wrong button. That's okay. Thanks a lot, Dale, as well, uh, um, uh, for coming on uh, and taking the time to to talk to us and educate us all. Um, uh, uh, and uh, the link for both of their info is in the description of the video uh, and if you're listening to the audio format um, you can find the info that way as well uh, in the in the description no matter what where you're listening to it so I uh, really appreciate it and I do apologize for the audio issues again um, YouTube totally sprung a major change on how they host the whole thing so I'm now running it through OBS which has caused me a whole bunch of issues that I was not anticipating having to deal with today but thankfully I used to work do a lot of video game streaming on Twitch so I was able to slap something together in about 45 minutes that functioned well enough for us to have a show tonight and still get it recorded so uh, I appreciate everyone's patience uh, um, so thanks again uh, and you guys are welcome to uh, take off if you want or you're welcome to stay and listen to we'll, we'll go on for about another half hour talking about our grows and then we'll close up so, but I appreciate you guys coming on. Very awesome. And I put a bunch of links in chat for 
the Instagram for Open Cannabis Project, Planet and Planet.com for Dave. And uh, anybody that threw out. Uh, Dale, Dale. His name is Dale. Dale. I'm sorry. It's okay. I'm very sorry. <laughs> but yeah, cool. I went ahead and just threw some links to chat. So if anybody. Thank you. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, and thanks, y'all. It's been a wonderful evening. I'm going to hop off, but um, have a great night, and I'll hopefully talk to all of y'all soon. Cool. Appreciate it. Thanks again. You're welcome anytime. We'll have to get you back on again in a little bit and then update everyone again. You got it, man. I'm here. Thank you. All right. Bye. Good night. Good night. So, uh, Malik, how have you been? Uh, what's up with your grow, and uh, what's new with you? Um, You know, I went through... Uh, a little bit of struggles with my health um but then i'm back from that now doing very well just really sticking with uh like herbal remedies steve we were talking a little bit on dm about what happened um you know i back in 2009 i broke some bones uh femur ribs shoulder punctured lung acl reconstruction we all have pains we've all been through hard you know we've all been through stuff but um Instead of using opiates, I used cannabis, and that's what started me in this whole YouTube journey and getting my dog, the Boston Terrier, uh, you know, the extra support, of course. So, but then, um, you know, for a little bit there, I uh, was using the Kratom, and then I tried using herbal tea, which actually caused me more stomach issues. But now I'm doing great, and I'm back into the YouTube, YouTube scene, putting content out. Very happy and excited to be on the panel today. And just, I was trying to get on last week when Kevin Jordy was on, but man, he was, I seen him going off, dropping the knowledge, and I was like, I'm not going to go in halfway through and interrupt him, man. Uh, so I'll just let him go, and I'll just jump in the next following weeks, because Steve's so kind, he, he shares the link every week to me, and uh, just, so. Uh, my you should have jumped in, though. You should have jumped in, so you could ask him a question, man. I know. He is so cool. He was like, so cool. He was so down to earth. Man. Dude, his micronized sulfur information yeah. just on, the, on the one upload saved me fifteen thousand dollars, maybe. Like, I, not to throw numbers out there, but like, the micronized sulfur as an IPM is a is a big one for me. I really love it. Not to mention, I noticed a few new companies. I don't know if it was Dragonfly Earth Medicine or somebody using micronized sulfur or like some type of sulfur foliar. You know, like a mixture. So that was pretty cool. But for my grow, I'm just using Timber Grow Lights, Barrel 29 Diodes, uh, it's an LED, and then the Fluence Bioengineering Spider X's, and then over, and then just a little bit of HPS uh, here and there, just to, just to maintain some other veg areas. And uh, you know, just doing the best I can do over here in Michigan. I can't believe how big things are getting in Michigan in a 20 square mile area anywhere in mid-michigan you got 10 10 dispensaries and 10 grow shops like it's and they all need seeds uh the, the demand for clones is high so i'm just enjoying wow yeah it's everything is really popping off wild oh I, i'm right by flint michigan you know my water is okay, so we're all right. I got low water. But, uh, <laughs> but I'm not going to rant much longer. Um, I was, thank you again for having me, Steve, Fulton Tonics, and Roger, and everybody, Mr. Green. Man. Yeah, but what about seven. Don't you breed? 
Yeah, I own, I, I run a company. Talk about your new genetics or what are you doing or something? Yeah, real quick. Uh, yeah, I'll drop real quick. Um, I run a small LLC called Dank Breeds LLC, and I built a group of guys called the Fire Squad, and it's probably like 30 or 40 guys across internationally, mostly Canada and the U.S., and they do a lot of my testing, or they do a lot of the testing, and they do breeding projects themselves together. And it's really, um, when I was working under sub, or when I was working with Subcool doing the Weed Nerd Live show, he was the one who encouraged me to get my own LLC going. Yeah, yeah, LLC, yeah. Yep, so I got that going, and then uh, I haven't really applied that much, but I did build dankbreeds.com, a website, which we're constantly upgrading. And um, we're doing small craft, uh, transparent projects. You know, just basically I built this this uh, Dank Breeds and Fire Squad, and it's just a, such a good group of nice guys, just like you guys, that I would love to use it for anything they want to use it for to uh, further themselves in marketing or um, possibly make a little money or anything, anything they want to do. Have fun. You know, like we do here, have fun too. So that's just what I've been doing with the breeding. Um, strain specific wise, I've been working with a lot of nine pound hammer, uh, old, an old, a seven year old cut from the first release that has Jack Ripper dominant structure, but an OG nug structure, but it's a lighter lime green color with lighter orange hairs. And it, and it is so stable, so stable, that I took it out of flower at three and a half weeks and set it in my bedroom, hoping it would nanner at 24 hour light. And it was in the 24 hour light for about two and a half weeks. It did not nanner. I threw it back in flower, let her finish off. And um, now I'm trying to get it to reverse the silver thiosulfate, do a feminized project with it. And boy, I'm gonna have to up, up the dosage of the silver thiosulfate I'm using on her because I've, I've been growing her for years, and I've never seen her nanner. And I've done one time the fan caught the trellis and just ripped off like four tops in the middle of week four flower, and it didn't even flinch it. Have you tried slamming the end? What was that? What was that, Steve? I'm sorry. Have you tried slamming the nitrogen in flower? No, I have not tried that. Yeah, try that. It might work. Something else was interesting. Concept, I must say, thank you, Steve. That's I was just going to be the base of the root growth, too. So, like, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think that, uh, you know, like the vitamin B12. Uh, uh, well, uh, I, I, no. So, vitamin Bs actually can be very good for boosting flower as well and making big buds and accelerating the growth okay. rate later on. Plants actually will actively use vitamin B pretty readily. Um, actually, you know, there's some there. It's in some grow products, especially amino acids. That you'll see vitamin B on the in the you know, listed on the bottle. Yeah. yeah. If you re, also, if you just repot the plant, or you know, trim the roots and stick uh, new dirt underneath that, and you get the roots to grow again. So that's probably the best. You know, that's really helpful in regen. You know, getting a plant to regenerate, but it also sometimes makes a plant that's you know borderline hermaphrodite kick out. So something right. else I've noticed, particularly with CBD cultivars, is that they love to herm on 24 hours of light, the CBD heavy mm. ones specifically. If I put them under 24 wow. hours, I've noticed a much greater rate of herming. And I can even take a plant that's doing that and put it into like 18 hours of light, 
and it'll stop perming and it'll behave in a normal oh, veg state. Wow. But I've only that noticed that I've yeah. only specifically noticed that with CBD cultivars. Um, That's the, very the, interesting. The two that I've seen it strongly were were um, uh, uh, equatorial CBD strains. So not something everyone's going to get their hands on, but it, it's something that I, I found really weird from just a uh, stress standpoint that it was not that it was freaking out about the 24 hours. And then as soon as I dropped it to 18 and gave it that, you know, six hours at nighttime, it stopped doing it, you know, which to me was just weird. You know, I thought it was really, you know, there's, there's some, you could, I don't know, there's more to it than that. You could do something with that. Anyways, um, yeah. you could learn something Very from it. Very interesting. So, anyways. Because I would, a CB, you know, a windowsill purple CBD variety that says a souvenir was always one of those ones that I knew would just fly yeah. off the shelves. Like, it would sell so good. And uh, I see you doing something like that very soon. Uh, nice. Just because you're working with the CBD so good. Well, what's interesting is we've, we've gotten really radically different profiles from aquaponic production versus soil. And something with the aquaponics is boosting the CBD specifically, along with THCV and total terpene profiles. So, you know, I, I don't necessarily know if it's something that's going to translate. I know there's a guy out there, um, uh, his name's Scott something or other, but he's out there making the claim right now that, you know, fungal dominance um, uh, increases CBD and bacterial dominance increases THC. Well, that might be the case with very specific scenarios but I've done side-by-sides with DWC plants, or oh, I haven't, but I've had clients that have done straight DWC or even media bed with no, um, with no soil at all. So zero soil whatsoever, even in the DWC, there's zero mycorrhizae. If it's straight in the water, there's no mycorrhizae on that plant. And it was beating yeah. the control uh, that was in soil for CBD level and side-by-sides. So... Wow. You know, clearly that, that yes, fungal, inducing fungal will increase canna total cannabinoid production for sure, but increasing biodiversity is, is actually the, the trigger. But it's not so much fungal versus bacterial, it's biodiversity. And then specifically with lignin-producing yeah. plants, the more lignin-producing production it has, the more woody it is, the more fungal, the more it will increase its growth from fungal dominance. In, in this root zone. Now, for instance, um, uh, uh, yeah, we did fruit trees in aquaponics with the dual root zone. Okay. We did various depths and, uh, of the roots for the, for the soil layers, and we noticed the deeper ones had much better growth uh, uh, on the woodier crops with the more fungal layer in there. And same thing with OSHA, for instance. We did OSHA, which is a very hard to grow uh, medicinal herb that's traditionally only wild harvested or mainly wild harvested. Um, at least to get good medicinal OSHA. Um, that's something that I, I will do myself. I, I'll go find stuff that's falling in the, in the side of the creek or whatever, so I'm not taking anything. I'm not, I won't go dig stuff up, but I'll take what nature's presenting to harvest, um, which is the, an ethical way to harvest a plant that takes that long to grow. Um, you know, just let wait for the spring runoff and you'll, you'll get plenty, don't worry. Um, uh, but... Um, uh, we were able to replicate that by introducing a soil that was very similar to where they came from in wicking bags, uh, like uh, smart pots, 
and then inoculating them with some um, mycorrhizae that I had gotten from a wild patch of OSHA and inoculating them that way and actually getting that to take in a, in a you know, semi-commercial aquaponic setup. Um, and, and so you can actually do really cool stuff with that, um, especially with, with stuff that needs, you know, OSHA root needs a very specific moisture level in the root zone for its mycorrhizae, that it needs that boosted moisture level that you can get kind of in a wicking bed. And that's where I learned a lot about, figured out a lot of this stuff with the, you know, tinkering with that because we realized there was something to the fungal stuff, but then it was, okay, well, is it the fungal stuff or is it just straight biodiversity? And in every test that I've done so far, it's just been straight biodiversity. The moment you diversify that, even without the presence of fungals, you're going to get an increase in cannabinoids either way. Um, but it's not going to have any kind of expression difference between CBD and THC. And especially when you run something like a DWC run, you know, there's zero mycorrhizae. Yeah. And if that theory was correct, um, that would have a lower CBD level because it's 100%, you know, bacterial um, or, you know, 99 whatever percent bacterial. I'm sure there's some kind of fungi in there. Um, uh, so back to, since you brought up deep water, you went back to... You kind of went full circle back to deep water culture. I just want to clarify for everybody. How did you do, or ask you a question, Steve? Um, you, when you say deep water culture, I, I, I'm pretty sure you're talking about using aquaponics. Yeah. Um, the, the same, all right, now, so in your deep water, how do you build your deep water culture system? Are you using buckets or are you using a trough? Or, or no, this was using? all in troughs with rafts. This was at a commercial facility. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. They just fill them up, and they have their drainage level. Yeah. So, so again, it's it's about biodiversity, and when you do the dual root zones setup, you're going to get at minimum 167 yes. percent more biological diversity, based on and that number is based on a NASA study um, that they did, and and I have this in my I talk about this in a couple of my presentations, um, that the the you know there's just you get radically radically increase. In, in biodiversity with the aquaponics, especially with the split root zone, you have your living soil above, your aquatic microbes below, and you're actually getting the maximum exposure that you can possibly ex healthily, in a healthy way, expose those plants to the widest variety of microbes. And when you do that, what do you cause? You cause the maximum expression of that plant trying to defend itself or at least build an antibodies against, or what would be equivalent to antibodies to, against all those. And what, what, what are those? Terpenes. It makes terpenes as a response to different uh, uh, things that might threaten the plant, which if you expose the root zone to more microbes, now it's got more things to, to, to use as a basis for making, you know, as examples for defenses. So when you increase your terpenes, you're also increasing your cannabinoids because what are cannabinoids? They're a terpene plus a phenol. So when you actually increase the biodiversity of the root system, you're going to increase the terpenes, you're going to increase your total cannabinoids. Um, so, so that's the reason why, you know, dual root zone aquaponics actually will give you higher terpene numbers than pretty much anything else you can do, even living soil, because you're getting all the benefits of both worlds. You could even do large pots, do a no-till, and run them for years, you know, and, and still get all the benefits. Yes, you're not directly connected to the ground, but that's really just a hippie bullshit excuse, to be honest with you. Um, the water is still connected to the earth. The thing's sitting on the ground, um, you know, that doesn't make any sense. Um, you know, if you really want to connect it, whatever, you can run a wire. Uh, I know, um, was it Wade Lauder has done a bunch of side-by-sides and a bunch of research with that, or Wade Laughter has done a lot of research with that, um, the guy at Bennett Harlequin and the 
like we talked about him earlier um uh, about how what happened with charlotte's web but um uh, right uh, um so uh, that's actually the reason why aquaponics can give you superior cannabis and, and you know when you break it down and think about it in that way it makes out it's obvious you know it's super obvious why it works so much better but you know people don't really people do a bad job of explaining it um, and uh, uh, yeah this is one that even I don't understand fully and I need to be fully educated on how it is superior you know, I'm understanding a little bit as you're telling me but not soaking it all in. It's, but it'll, over time, I'm, I want to understand. So you have a dual root zone pot, and the top half has your soil, and you have a layer of burlap, and then the bottom half is your flood and drain hydrogen or lava rock. So the bottom yeah. half is flooding and draining with your aquatic microbes and acting like a diaphragm to increase your gas exchange in both the bottom half and the upper half. Because if it's in a pot, it's going to function like a piston, and it's going to force that air up through that soil air. zone. And right. that, that when you do that, so the, the, the like fungi that. and everything rapidly increase in growth rate. Um, the, the bacteria, the rotifers, the amoebas, all the different creatures that make you know, microarthropods, that increased oxygen level makes them grow faster um, and, and makes them replicate faster and they're all happier faster. There's more food, everything gets rocket. Uh, I just posted a picture yeah. on my Instagram before, right before the show of a ridiculously healthy um, uh, uh, dual root zone pot, you know, it's just teeming with fungi. It's ludicrous. Check that out. Um, and that that was inoculated, you know, a little over a week ago, um, which is insane considering it's basically a flat mat of white. So, uh, how quickly it's colonizing with some of this newer lab. I'm experimenting with some different lactobacillus um, species for for making labs and uh, coming up with some yeah. really cool results along with a couple of different inputs. But trying to come up with a uh, trying to make it easier for people. Uh, I know labs are really awesome, but it's a little bit complicated. Um, there you go. Malik's got it up. So this is the picture I was referring to. Yeah, there you go. You can see. Yeah. So imagine if there was like pythium or some root, na nasty root issue that came in there. How's that going to even attempt to survive that? Like it's just going to be completely dominated. Exactly. So that's that's you know that's kind of the thing where you know when you go probiotically you don't you don't really have to worry about bad pathogens because you have you have an army ready to take on anything that even hits the soil if anything even tries to contaminate anything you know it's just being completely outcompeted and and can't even you know remotely have a chance of establishing itself. So that's something that um, I'm trying to streamline. I'm trying to make it much faster for you guys to make labs. Um, labs are really awesome. It's a wonderful thing, but it, it takes a long time. It's annoying to try and collect the yeast and the air and all that. You know, it, it's kind of uh, tedious, especially for people that don't know. So I'm working on a couple of formulations that will streamline that and make it much easier. Okay. Um, and and make it much faster. For the book, it's to be tedious because I just, really? To me, it's a lot of steps. And I can, I've, I'm working on ways to. Yeah, so I'm working on work. Well, not only that, so I, have, I cut down the time to like three to five days for a commercial batch rather than the two weeks. Oh, wow. Um, so um, it's a lot faster. That's going to be. Um, so it's especially if you're, doing, if you're doing commercial, yeah, it is. Um, if it's gonna, you know, if we're doing commercial batches and yeah, stuff, you want to speed everything up. You know, you don't have time. You know, it's a lot of 
of physical space, if I have a large vessel that's kept up for two weeks, that's a lot of physical space that, that and a square footage that is now not generating cash for me right now. So I, I want to be able to use those brewers for making ferments, but I want to be able to use it quickly, make that ferment, and then move on to making the next one and just store it, you know, stabilize and store it because lab stores stabilizes pretty well. You can make a batch every three to six months and not, and then, you know, move on. Um, so I want to be able to run FPGAs. I want to be able to run other things in those fermenters. So by able to accelerating the labs and then making it more accessible to people, um, I think it's going to make it a, a, a something people use a lot more. And like Kevin was talking about last week, um, uh, how Alan from Grokashi um, and Probiotic Farmers Group, uh, uh, he was one of the guys to first discover the um, using the lactobacillus stuff for cleaning up the viruses. And then when they had the new Cambrian layer breaking up, taking the clean clean cones off of that, and then they would not, the majority of them would not, when not stressed, would not express that um, viral um, expression and, and, and they would actually just grow fine. So they were able to clean up their genetics by doing that multiple times and reducing that viral load each time. Um, they could, you know, do that, you know, until it was clean or, you know, as close as you could get. Um, so, yeah, uh, but Pogolactum but so, bacillus is collecting the bacteria, so if you try, and it takes time to do that, so you right. start speeding it up. You know, so I'm going to play devil's advocate. Right, but what I if I gave you... you got a fucking great what if I, idea. What if I'm I, just going to fuck you. I'm sorry, but I'm going to mess with you right now. What if I gave you those bacteria and just was like, here, you add this to this, this to this, and go, rather than having to wait and do all that. If you just had a culture that you could just get that you knew was awesome, that had, art, you know, had some testing behind it, that had some... So, you know, came from a, a company or a group that you already yeah. did a bunch well, of organic stuff. Well, to me, that sounds as consumer, as commercial entity, I think that's great. Well, but and the other thing is... Or a, or a, or a home grower, yeah. uh, like or, or somebody with their own private little micro farm, they would need to produce their own because... And you'd be able to. Complicated, you say it's uncomplicated, so in a commercial uh, a venue, I can see it's uncomplicated, but for a small somebody small it's not uncomplicated you have to order it you have to pay for it you have to get it and then it's not indigenous to your bacteria in your area well it's a it's more of a methodology anyone could copy it and not have to buy the thing like it's it's just it's no different than like gold root zone like, right right you know it's a concept that works that you know you could replicate on your own with your local resources it's just you know it's also a lot easier too if people can just go buy something off the shelf, especially for a commercial producer where everything has to be certified and signed off on by the state and all those other happy horse shit. So by having something that you can run through that and eventually get certified, you know, maybe not now, but you know, put it in the pipeline so that it could get, you know, approval with all these states that are requiring whitelisting whitelisted products for all their stuff. You know, right. that you, you gotta, ha you, you pretty much pigeonholed into doing this if you're gonna get it up there. Because even if you teach people that, there still has to be that research behind it in order for them to be, even be able to use it, even if they aren't buying it from you. So that's kind of where this is going. Um, we have two different versions. I'll hopefully that's see the light of day by the end of the year. Um, but yeah, as soon as I'm happy with this, a little bit longer, we'll. Um, uh, I'll, I'll release it and let everybody know. I'll do a YouTube video on it and everything. But um, at least for a little bit longer while we're I'm gonna while we test it, I'm going to um, uh, keep it under wraps at least for now. But uh, yeah, it's it's really cool. Uh, I'm sure talking to Chris Trump about 
uh, a little bit earlier and, and what his thoughts were on it. I think, you know what, we'll probably talk about it on the panel. Um, oh, that we'll do I can't on the, wait to be in Ann Arbor Yeah. <laughs> so, actually, I was going to ask you, Malik, are you going to be in our in our Arbor at the conference? You know, um, how many days we got? Uh, how, 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 how many days do we have until the conference? It's the 22nd, 22nd through the 24th, 24, which is about nine or ten days. Ago. Yeah, it's in Ann Arbor. At Crow Green. Um, at, at Crow I may Green. have a few appointments around that time. Sure. But I'm, if I can make it, I will. If I can make it, I will. I would, I, dude, I don't, I don't want to miss a chance to come hang out and meet you guys. You know what I'm saying? So if there's one day that I, that I can make it, I'll... I mean, sure. well, there's evening tickets where you, after the conference, like the speakers speak, but yeah. you can uh, still be there, they like 25 bucks. If you come Is down, if you come down, 25? no, if you Is come down, no, 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 I got you, I got you, just, just, just yeah, panel, panelists, I got you, don't, don't worry about the ticket, we got you, um, so, yeah, I'll bring, I'll, I'll bring a lot of money with me, I'll bring a lot of money with me anyway, but yes. Um, so Sunday, Sunday is the sun, the most useful. Uh, uh, you know, not counting the information or speakers, um, Sunday is a very useful day because of the seed swap. Yep. So. The breeder panel. Oh wow! Yeah. So I can just, I can yeah. bring a bunch of stuff to hand out or or just hand out or Oh man, I gotta get over there. Yeah, I'll make I'll make it one day. I'll make it one day. I gotta see my appointment schedule, but. Suddenly became free. I just seen my calendar like photographic memory, and then yes, it clicked. So yeah, <laughs> the coconut capsules I ate earlier were uh, maybe getting me a little stony. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, definitely be worth your while since you got something to offer too. Yep. Uh, so what about you, Mr. Green Jeans? What's new with you and your garden? Um, not much. Same old thing. Uh, <laughs> I've grown myself into the corner. Got no room left. Three cherry bomb plants will just kill me. Overgrow, overgrow. Overgrow, yeah. Terrible. You kill me with that, that cherry bomb. You gotta give me some cherry bomb. Kind of a like a growth uh, decelerator or something like that. A cannabis, something that makes cannabis grow slower. Yeah, that's another. <laughs> you know, all these other guys, they they just naturally. That happens to them, but us we have the opposite problem, eh? Yeah, it's terrible. Especially pulling Bonnie Steve here. You know, this. <laughs> I, I, I can relate to that out. too. Ever since I learned it, when I, when I when I decided to learn, you know, let's say uh, like a decade and a half ago, uh, to do because I got sick of trying to chase it, and uh, 
So we decided to, to, to experiment. And I really went and did a lot of research and all, you know, to, to figure it out. And you know what's funny? I, I went from doing research to being a moderator on the cannabis site. And now I've been a moderator for over 15 years. And it was because I learned, I went and read and learned. I found out who the hot people were, you know, and then I followed what they what they said to do, you know, how they how they grew and everything. And then I shared it with others, you know, and we come to this point. Uh, yeah, there we go. Um, um, we're. We're all sitting here sharing all this information, and it's and it's so open. Um, I don't know. I I, I kind of lost. I had another point to make, and I lost it. But here we go again. I was with I was with you. I was with you. Uh, I was gonna but, say uh, on that note, it was really awesome to talk at up in Portland because it, you know it was so alien to all these growers to come out in the open. And, and talk about it and I know uh, like Kevin was saying last week with with my friend who came up from Texas um, uh, you know he had never seen that many seeds before in his whole life like individual people there had more seeds than he had ever seen in his life but that right. whole room collectively was like Disney World to him like like, oh to, my gosh. like but so what was really special was in Portland that was like half the room half the room had never seen bags with a thousand seeds before or like sit like that so that was like so wonderful to like expose people and i thank josh and leighton so much for putting it on um uh you know yeah. to, to to give people that experience because you know that made people's day there was people that were glowing like like floating oh, out of that building <laughs> That would be crazy. Yeah, so so that was that was really cool because on the West Coast, you know, people, uh, you know, uh, how long have people been doing seed swaps there, Mr. Green Jeans, in Cali, that you know of? Oh, I don't know, forever. I mean, forever, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But now when I was growing on the East Coast, that you know, allegedly, um, there was only, you know, three people on Earth that knew I grew. The other guy that occasionally helped me with the grow when I wasn't there you know and was helping me out uh, and then two other people who we both each of us had figured out some other person in town that was a grower because they always had lots of keef and lots of bubble hash and you know and that you know if you have lots of that kind of stuff it's pretty obvious that you have access to a lot of plant material so at a low low cost which means you're probably growing so so that's true. I mean, there was a, there was a time when everybody was in the closet. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, mean I guess really only since maybe the late '90s, early 2000s, has there been the really open, you know, open seed swapping and stuff like here in Southern California. I mean, I'd like to think it was forever because for me, I mean, I didn't come here to California until the early '90s, and it was immediately like as if coming into the you know coming into the true cannabis culture. Even then, you know, from from the hill, a real improvement in cannabis culture. Even though back in those days we were still pretty much in the closet, it wasn't until like yeah, yeah, late '90s, early 2000s, that things started flowering out, and you know, much more communication between growers and breeders and things like that. Yeah, it's been great. It just keeps, it keeps getting better. <laughs> It's where we're at now is amazing, isn't it?
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Look at the guests on the show every week that are like one third our age or half our age. And they are just building a new superstructure of, you know, a network for cannabis legalization and, and databases and legalization. And, and like tonight, we, you know, we, we have a lawyer that, you know, that, that has a real good idea about, you know, what's going on with genetics and all, you know. So, this show is amazing. Yeah. This, uh, this podcast is incredible. I, I have a feeling uh, it's going to be. People are going to be watching the archives of it years from now. I think it's just. Oh, sorry, I didn't realize I was unmuted when I moved my chair there. I'm sorry, guys. It makes sense. So. Wow. It happens. Anyway, well, I'm done. Yeah. I, I said my part. Cherry bomb. Yeah, I love my cherry bomb plants. Oh, and yeah, I got no cherry bomb. I've had, I've had cherry bomb all the way over here in the Midwest. <laughs> Awesome. Yeah, it is dang for sure. Dutch, uh, Dutch sent me some pictures of some seeds for sale up there and uh, up there where he lives. Like he, he went into the local dispensary and took a picture of the seeds on the shelf. I was like, wow, the whole world is <laughs> it's great, man. I love it. Oh man, I just got a great taste out of whatever I'm smoking. I just got a great taste. Cheers. Nice. I, Cheers. I, I don't get it all the time. I don't. I'm not able to always capture the terpenes and all that taste. But every once in a while, I'll take a bud, and then it's like, oh yeah, that. I just like just felt like I ate some grape juice. Drank some grape juice. So we were just that in the chat room talking about the idea of crossing grapes with cannabis, and uh, you know. Getting great flavored cannabis. So um, yeah. I'm suggesting just growing them next to each other because then maybe the cannabis will kick, pick up the terpenes. Just me and Steve were talking about that. Well, I would kind of have it when you got the you know you got the you got the great purple time things, the blueberries and all that. At a different times, it tastes like berry or it tastes like you go, is that like blueberry taste or is that grape? I mean, it's just. It is interesting how that could happen. You know, I mean, I love, like, but, and again, I've told you guys many times on the show, I love the, and I love that, uh, of that uh, Beth was talking about, like, retaining the older, you know, classic. Now, I know she was talking about, kind of seemed like uh, they were talking about more of the clone-only strains, you know, you know, the, 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 the clone-only strains are out there, but we also have all these other uh, still seeds, you know, you still get seeds for, certain strains and i like the fact that they were into the uh, uh the older um catalog let's just say call it the older part of the catalog the, the strains have been around for a lot longer and because you know that's what i've been involved with but i'm intrigued and believe me i wish i was somewhere where i could just grow a shitload of plants with open genetics you know um and like josh loves to do Josh is always talking about open pollination. He just throws it all out there and lets it go. And, you know, and 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 the thing from you having uh, uh, Mr. Green Jeans having stable strains right up to how you like to throw out seeds to everybody so they can create something or find like isn't it you that likes to use that term the unicorn? Oh yeah, I know. I just last week I love it. I, I, I never heard that term 
I think it was Kevin. Oh, well, who, uh, somebody yeah. on our show said, Kevin. who was that, Steve? Kevin. It was Kevin. Actually, actually, oh, yeah, Kevin Jody flying the unicorn. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, Steve, you know, some shit sticks in my head. So, you know, I'm a little older than you guys, so some shit just got I think there's a couple strains already named Unicorn Piss or Unicorn something. Or, like, <laughs> no, the uh, best, you, you already know there is. No, but he was talking about when you go to a thousand or ten thousand seeds. Unicorn, yeah. You find, he was talking about you go to a thousand or ten thousand. Uh, like, you plant them all at the same time. No, the best, the best one in Emerald was Cokehead Slut. There's a strain called Cokehead <laughs> Slut. It's like, no, 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 yeah, no, no, I'm totally going to be able to sell that to a soccer mom that comes in or a little old lady that wants something to go to sleep. She's going to buy Cokehead Slut, I'm sure. Yeah. You know, right. first choice. One of the ones I like was Titty Sprinkles. Titty Sprinkles. Can you imagine trying to recommend some little old lady some, some yeah, you need some Titty Sprinkles. Like, come on, guys, we got to get a little bit more adult with the names. Oh, little like, old ladies. Yeah, a little bit more adult with the names. Had, you know, well, no, I'm going to stop right there. Yeah, you better stop. Yeah, you know, you know, when I was younger, I might have said, you know, you, you know, anytime you get a woman's panties wet, you know, then you're doing good. Yeah, but that shouldn't be the name of your strain, though. Your strain shouldn't be called anytime you get your girl's panties wet. You know, that should not be the strain name. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, um, so, so, um, I'm been, uh, I'm running off to, I'll be off to Michigan, and then I'll be off to an undisclosed location working on one of the new projects. I will not be able to film there but I will hopefully be able to run down and film in a commercial aquaponics op. I'm trying to make it down to this one I'm, I'm pretty close to um, before I leave uh, where I'm at for, for quite a while. So, uh, And then I'll be off. Well, I'll have some really cool uh, stuff in April. Um, we have the DGC Cup coming up, and then we also have, um, I'll have some cool filming uh, opportunities with some spots I'll be working with. I think you guys are going to like the scale of what we're doing. It's going to be kind of crazy compared to stuff I've had on the channel before. So it'll be pretty dope. So, um, yeah, so that's just, that's all that's been new with me working so on. Awesome. Some... Shout out to Dude Grows Crew. Hell yeah. And weren't you the one that brought the insufferable, uh, the snortable THC powder? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> was that you? Yeah. Was that you? <laughs> yeah, I was the one that brought the weed powder, so. I just, I just, you know, I, I have these big memories, and I'm like, that was Steve. Yep. <laughs> there's a weird, talking about it. there's yep. a weird, strong Very weed product. Yeah, if, too cool. I just had to bring it up. If there's a, a strange, if there's a strange, super potent weed product, I'm probably responsible. Yes, yes, sir. Oh, <laughs> yes, my, my, my. I can't wait. Oh, man. Anybody that was at uh, the Portland show. Had some some new experimental stuff, um, mm -hmm. and got to get super super high off of a couple blunts that we rolled. So oh, that was pretty fun to to show off some stuff that's not on you know not out in public yet. So. Yes, I had a great time with you guys, man. Oh yeah, and uh, well, I'll see. Are you coming to the cup in uh, in um, April? Uh the, in Michigan here, the High Times Cup? Yeah. No, no, the DGC Cup. Oh, the DGC Cup. I'm not sure if I'm going to make that one. I have to 
the I was actually have to set up a irrigation system first to be able to go. But but then yeah, if I can get the irrigation stuff in time, I'm coming. <laughs> awesome. And um, cool. Um, so do you want to tell? We'll wrap the show up. Do you want to tell? Oh, first off, I wanted to say um, please go check out regeneriveorganiccannabis.com. Um, yeah. March twenty second through twenty fourth. Um, uh, is the Science of Regenerative Organic Cannabis Conference. Josh from Dutch Blooms and Leighton from Kingdom Aquaponics put, put it together. Um, we have Dr. Elaine Ingham, Susan Wainwright Evans, Chris Trump, myself. Um, uh, we're going to be doing a panel, I think, on Friday night. You're going to see Chris and Elaine and myself and, and uh, Susan and um, Wendy and I'm not sure who Layton. else will be there. Layton. Um, well, we're, we're all going to be on a panel together on Friday night and, and get, which was yeah. really fun in Portland where we got a chance to talk about uh, everyone's perspectives. Um, if dragonflies there, we'll try to drag them in. Uh, I don't know what day they're coming in. I know that they're flying back from Bali and coming straight to the conference. So, um, now, Steve, when, when you're talking, talking about, about that panel in the evening, is that the evening ticket for 25 bucks? Yep. Yep, so those evening tickets oh, as well. Oh, that's not bad. You ought to explain that to yeah. people that might be local that, you know, because it's $125 per day or $299 for the three days, and you can come in an evening session, which is after the speakers, but a panel wherein people are hobnobbing and hanging out for $25. Yep. I like the hobnob. And then Saturday, so, so, so uh, we have Chip Osborne as well. Uh, soil scientists, uh, and then on Saturday we have Susan Maywright Evans and we have Chris Trump talking. Uh, Susan Maywright Evans is she's going to come on the show. Um, I don't have a date yet, but possibly the day right before the conference uh, that on the 21st. We're talking about trying to maybe get her on, um, but she's probably the world's most knowledgeable person on insects in terms of cannabis. Um, yeah, and, and beneficial insects to use for bugs on your cannabis. Um, so you know, she's yeah, she she's just super 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 awesome. Um, she also does a lot of work with with um, animal shelters and stuff. So if you're ever wanting to thank her for her knowledge, you know, go out and um, you know check out on her website. I think she has a link to the the group she works with that rehabilitates cats. Um, I have a, a avid cat owner as well. So you know, if you ever want to thank her for her knowledge, um, you know, go to her donation button over there, and uh, it will go to her um, her cat charity. So. Um, if you do, you know, please, you know, support that. She, she's invaluable. If you ever don't know an insect, um, you know, you can send it to her. Uh, she prefers them in alcohol and a little vial, um, but you can also send her, you know, really good pictures. Again, she probably can't ID them, but uh, from a picture alone, but she can give you a good idea. Um, I know I recently was running into a mite that I couldn't quite explain. And uh, it turns out it was just one that feeds on fungi, and it, and you guys have seen the insane levels of fungi I have in my in my root zones. And uh, it turns out they were just feeding on it and not bothering the plant not at all whatsoever, not even on the plant, but they're just present in the root zone. And it freaked me out because they looked like white spider mites. Um, you know, I couldn't identify them as anything that was negative, uh, anything that would you know any root mite or anything. But it turns out they're just a harmless fungal feeding mite and they're not hurting anything so no reason to worry about them you know maybe just throw some something to feed on them but you know you don't have to go crazy and purge the room or anything so you know thank you so much for all the knowledge she does I know she's working on a book as well um, but if you ever have anything weird uh, or anything unusual put it in alcohol and send it to her because she can actually ID it that way she can dissect it and um, she's actually done a lot of work with helping to identify 
um, you know, the fact that, you know, traditionally you're told, for instance, um, thrips are, are Western flower thrips. They're not. They're onion thrips traditionally on your cannabis. And there's a, there's a second one. I forget what the other one is, but they're onion thrips and this other thrip, which is, is completely different, especially when you're talking about what's going to eat them. Um, you know, so this is the reason why properly identifying stuff and making sure you're getting good information on it is so critical because you might think it's something and hit it with a beneficial that's not going to feed on it at all, you know, or, or, or very little, you know, so that's why it's really important to know what you're doing. So that's what she brings. She does a three-hour talk on all these different beneficial and pest insects, how to identify them, how to tell them apart, microscope video and stuff. It's really, really incredible. Um, and then Chris Trumps is talking in the afternoon, and then uh, I forget who else is in it. Dragonfly Earth Medicine well, is also in the afternoon. Chris Trumps is also doing a hands-on clinic, isn't Yeah, it? I think we have So I don't know if we're doing the workshops in Ann Arbor. I'm not sure. Josh could tell. I know, okay. I know the we Dragonfly. We also have Craig Johnson, Joshua Sunderland. Yep, so they'll um, be there, and then um, um, Dragonfly Earth Medicine Randy? will be there as well. I think this Dragonfly is going to be talking in the afternoon. On Saturday as well, uh, and then we have the panel in the Pretty evening. Uh, and we have the panel in the evening, hosted by Dragonfly Earth Medicine with other Dempure certified farmers, which is always awesome. Right. Um, and then we'll have Kevin Jodry uh, rocking it in the morning on Sunday, and then oh, we'll have the, oh, oh. and then we'll have I the seed swap. Yeah, we'll have the seed swap uh, around lunchtime, and then we have lunch break, and then we go into. Um, Kevin Jodry hosts two separate breeders panels where he brings in uh, a group of local breeders and then a group of breeders from around the country um, to come talk on, um, you know, breeding practices, uh, what's going on with their grows, economic practice, you know, what, what's, what's hot right now, um, tips and tricks that they've learned on the small scale and cottage scale growing um, and, and, and how to manage the market because these guys have got way more experience than all of us combined. I mean, you guys found that out firsthand last week with Kevin. So, um, you know, Absolutely. when these guys talk, shut up and listen because you'll learn a lot. Um, <laughs> so, I know when we were in Vancouver, Kevin was staying at our house. Um, we had a, a Airbnb that had 80 bajillion bedrooms. And um, uh, I, every night, everyone was up till four or five listening to him. It was amazing. It, you know, it was really cool to like just hang and, uh, out with all the different speakers, hang out with Elaine, hang out with Dragonfly, hang out with everyone. It was just really cool. So, um, uh, you know, I love I love these conferences, and you get access to these people at the Regenerative Conference. You can go, you know, you want to go ask Elaine questions afterwards. Go ask her. You know, she's right there. You know, she's hanging out all day. You know, and she's there to answer to be there for you. So, um, and then. Uh, that's held in Ann Arbor and should come out in person. And if you can't make it, you can actually get a live stream ticket and I'll be helping. I'll actually be running the majority of the live stream except for the two panel, the panel and the, my presentation um, that I'm participating in. Um, and um, we'll have, you know, asking questions. And you know, if you want to ask a question on the thing, I'll raise my hand and ask the question for you unless it's particularly ridiculous or I think someone else is going to ask it. Um, you know, or you know, or I'll take the best five or ten questions and I'll ask them. So you'll have that level of interactivity, you know, with the live conference um, that you wouldn't normally have. So, and we actually have a professional filming team um, that I'll be working with um, that, that that's been hired to, to run the stream. So we'll have we'll be able to cut to microscopes yeah. and stuff, and and we'll, you know we'll be doing lots of different cool stuff with the video version um, that I'll be putting together. And it will, I promise it'll be better than this. Um, this was very last minute. <laughs> Um, with the audio problems, I do apologize, but we'll get it oh, sorted out by Thursday. Regenerative Cannabis Cultivation Conference. This is going to be sick.
Yep, so it's called regenerativeorganiccannabis.com, uh, and um, it's very affordable, when, especially when you look at the list of speakers and the amount of knowledge. It, it, you know, shit, even for the seed swap alone, it's worth it. So even, yeah. if, even if you're not even trying to get knowledge, which you're silly if you're not. Um, so, um, you know, it's really worth taking the time, and it's, it's kind of a, a wonderful group, and there's a lot of awesome things that have kind of come out of it. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you want to come talk to Dragonfly and talk to them about maybe getting a Dempure certification, how to get involved, you, they'll be there in person. Or if you want to come talk to Kevin about, you know, marketing, if you want to come talk to Elaine about, uh, you know, some soil discovery or microscope picture you got, great. You know, if you got some insects that you don't know what the hell they are, put them in alcohol and bring them for Susan. Uh, we'll have a microscope there. So. Um, you know, the, oh, it's wow. a, look at the website. It's so easy just to click it and go right to the live stream for Ann Arbor, Michigan. Very simple. Exactly. Then you go to speakers. It's got speakers.